Hello and welcome to the Travelling Through podcast. I'm your host, Emma, and for those of you who follow me on Instagram or indeed subscribe to the Travelling Through newsletter, you will know that my partner Steve and I travelled from Sussex down to Sicily in our campervan, which we named Roswin. We are now in Sicily, and while I am here, I am connecting with those people, those Sicilians, and anyone I can talk to, in fact, um, who have a connection to the land, to the food, to get a real sense of what Sicily is all about. And in this particular episode, I was very fortunate to meet up with somebody I have been following on Instagram. Her name is Gabriella Bacchina, and I met her in Castelvetrano. She took me on a exploration of her world, introducing me to olives, the olive mill, plants, fruit. We had a picnic. She was able to sit down with me and explain what her connection is to Sicily. Having been brought up in Switzerland, it is only in the last 19 years that she has come to Sicily to really re-establish who she is. She spent time in New York as an art historian, so the culture shock for her discovering her heritage in Sicily has been a real adventure for her and has taken her on a journey with her father producing olive oil to what she does now which is foraging, cooking for people, sheltering the stray dogs of Castelvotrana and many other things. She's also in the process of writing a book entitled From the Big Apple to the Big Olive. I spent two days with her so the first hour of this podcast is more of a walk and talk and a sit down and chat with Gabriella. The second half is more of our um, running around the countryside, trying fruit, tasting cheese, picnicking. So it's a bit more of an ad hoc part of the episode, which for those of you who are interested in all of that should listen to the second half. Um, but I hope you enjoy. Uh, Gabrielle is a wonderful person. Do connect with her. It's been a pleasure to have met her and uh, do follow her on Instagram. All this information is in the show notes. So without further ado, enjoy this first podcast set in the wonderful island of Sicily. Hello and welcome to the Travelling Through podcast. Today I am in Castelvoltrano. In fact, have I even pronounced that correctly? Probably not, but I'm here with Gabriella Bacchina. Hello, Gabriella. Hello, Emma. <laughs> so, Gabriella, I met through Instagram, actually, and have been following your profile and what you've been doing with olives and, and generally with food. And our dog is just the lovely black Labrador has just come to say hello to you. And we're, he, she's taken me to an olive grove, uh, which actually belonged to her great grandfather. Is that mm -hmm. correct, Gabriella? Mm -hmm. yeah. Many, many years ago. Grandfather. Actually, Great. grandfather. Oh, oh grandfather. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Many years ago, and it's changed hands quite a few times since the fifties, nineteen fifties. Nineteen fifties has been in the hands of the mafia at some point. Not for its olives. Yeah, for its uh, uh, parasol pines. Parasol pines, yeah. which they just cut down. Timber. For timber. Yeah. Uh, thankfully we hope that they left most of these olive trees and they look really, really healthy, but I do not know too much about olives. So I've asked Gabriella to come and explain to me a little bit about it. And we've just had a little introduction from the man who does own this grove at the moment, who has come back from Venezuela 
And this connection between Venezuela and Italy is also very interesting, isn't very it? Very interesting. He, his name is Vito de Benedetto, de Benedetto, and he is originally with his family. He comes from Santa Ninfa. <laughs> and it's just started to rain, <laughs> so maybe we should move. stop or move. <laughs> <laughs> so it's Saturday morning and Gabriella has brought me back to the olive groves that we came to yesterday because there was no picking going on, but today the sun is shining. I don't know whether you can hear the fall of olives into the, the buckets. And um, I've deliberately wanted to uh, come back here with Gabriella and she very kindly brought me here, drove me back out here to talk about the olives, to talk about the importance of picking olives and and also why why uh, why so many people get it wrong. Yep. And uh, so Gabriella, big question, sorry. But maybe in uh, as concisely as you can for, for those who may not really understand too much about olives, could you explain how they pick and what type, when they pick and, and uh, the importance of the weather as well and why they weren't picking yesterday, all these questions? Yes, uh, thank you for this question. It's a wonderful opportunity to be able to explain this. Um, the time of picking and the way in which olives are picked are of crucial importance for the quality of the olive oil. Mm -hmm. So what we're witnessing right now is a 100% hand picking hand harvest, which um, if you read it on the label of the oil you're buying could also mean that olives have been picked with a tickler or rakes, mm -hmm. in which case they fall onto nets. Yes. But that is not um, as nearly as high quality a result then in your oil yeah. as the type of picking we're witnessing here, which is really 100% hand picking. Yeah. The olives go into the hands of the pickers. Some of the hands have gloves on. The, tr the branches of olives get stripped or milked ideally not stripped so that not too many leaves are picked as well yeah and they fall into buckets that are hanging around people's necks mm -hmm. and then these buckets are emptied into little crates mm -hmm. and these little crates will then be emptied into the tractor uh, crate which is larger crate and then at the end of uh, of the day or the morning actually the tractor will drive to the olive mill and empty the crates there and they'll sure. do that maybe once or twice a day depending on how many olives they pick. Because so, of this, the importance that we were talking about yesterday about how quickly the olives start to oxidize once they are picked and so if you leave it too long the longer you leave it the less lesser quality and polyphenols there are in the, in yes, the olives. The, uh, exactly the olives you have in your pocket since yesterday you've been seeing how they've been getting mushier oozing oil yes. that's a process of decay which is called oxidation. And it happens with any fruit the moment it's picked. Right. And there are obviously certain types of uh, fruit and product you want to bled and oxidize and ripen. Mm -hmm. And others like olives instead uh, that you don't want to ripen or oxidize. And when I, when I say ripen, I mean off or on the branch, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. right? Some, some, some fruit, some, these are droops uh, to use the correct word, will uh, ripen on the branch. Some you need to pick and they ripen at home in your basket on a stall at the greengrocers, etc. So the reason why you don't want olives to ripen or oxidize is because all of the beautiful properties that make olives um, uh, a great source of edible fat, of mm -hmm. olive oil in this case, are hurt and damaged by oxidation and ripening. So right. if you pick an olive at this time of the year, which is 
October, the first half of October, you still get green olives, mm -hmm. but they are ripe technically. They've already reached that point, which happens at the end of September, early October, when their maximum production of, or yes, content of oil is reached. Yes, yeah. And after which, if they stay too long on the tree, they'll just grow dark and ripen into black olives, dark olives. Which we saw a few of yesterday, didn't yeah, we, yeah. as well. So. And so when you see the ripening of olives on a tree, you're looking at a traditional um, way of harvesting olives that is we let the olives ripen on the tree because once they're very ripe they have more oil that's the thinking there's more yield but that is the wrong thinking all the olives are doing is they're getting oxidized they're getting damaged they're losing their properties as they're ripening beyond that stage right. which has a name in italian it's called invaiatura i call it the white phase okay. because they cover themselves in lactobacilli and waxy white sheen and yes. little speckles white specks and so that phase of ripeness if you let that go by then they're going to start losing properties mm -hmm. but traditionally that's what was done because you could just shake a ripe hyper ripe olive at some point between november and december off a tree it would fall on the ground or onto nets so pick it, it up easy, it was low labor easy. it was yeah. easy uh, obviously low labor costs etc but the thing is how come all of a sudden the tradition got turned around was it that producers figured out ooh? The quality of our oil is better if we make it from wonderful green olives instead of waiting for them to ripen. Yes. And oh, it's fine. We'll just put more labor and costs and have a more intensive type of crop management to achieve this green olive to make better oil. No, that didn't happen. Okay. okay. Someone did it like that who happens to be very close to me. And that fact, it is your dad, father. my father, <laughs> which is why I happen to know a bit about it. But uh, traditionally, that wasn't the case, and the reason why the tradition changed is not just because someone who happens to be my father started this incredible product in the 80s called Green Oil, that was a label, Olio Verde, but it's because there is a unique quality over the past 50-60 years that local olive producers have found their specific variety of olive which grows here which is called the Nocellara de Bellice to possess mm -hmm. and that particular uh, value and virtue of this olive is that it is incredibly fleshy mm -hmm. and you can make it into a great table olive for eating. Mm -hmm. So what they did over the decades is that they started picking olives green in mm -hmm. October because you want a green olive to eat. Yes, yes. Ideally, um, people prefer eating green olives um, than eating black mushy olives in general. Mm -hmm. There's more of a market for the green olive. Yes, yes. And so they started uh, pruning their trees over, you know, several months. And so uh, by doing that, just like an apple orchard, you get low, lesser fruit, but they're all bigger, nicer looking, etc. Then they started looking to fight uh, the parasites that attack these trees over the seasons, different types of parasites in all kinds of ways that hopefully aren't too chemical, but everyone makes their own choice. Mm -hmm. um, and then organic doesn't mean anything much when it's on a Sicilian olive oil label anyway, because who checks, you know, but that's a long story. But at the end of the day, how are we looking today in 2022 at people harvesting these green olives and what are they going to do with this olive? Yeah, so yeah. we're looking at this happening because there was this split in the production which was like we're going to harvest green olives and obviously do all kinds of things to the olive trees throughout the year so that we reach this green olive which we're going to sell for the curing market as a table olive and we're going to get more money for this quality olive mm -hmm. than all the other olives we don't care about or the ugly ones or the ones hit by hail or the ones that grow on the patch of you know grove that we didn't look after well. prune as well yeah. or, or do any parasite fighting with or whatever and those bad olives or those overripe olives, there's black, we're just going to make oil. 
So the runt goes into the oil because mm -hmm. anything you press makes oil. oil. Yes, yes. Because what you showed me yesterday that you have the flesh of the, the olive, then you have the stone, but within the stone there's an, another seed. seed, like a little pip, yeah. like a grape pip yeah. almost. Yeah. And that's what produces the most amount of, of the, the oil. Whole, or yeah, the, the whole, whole olive produces um, oil and also the whole olive, different parts of the uh, olive have different properties mm -hmm. and you just want all of those compounds in your oil. Okay. Which okay. is why the idea of taking the stones out of olives and then pressing only the flesh, which was has been the trend for certain brands of olive oil, they've tried this. They've been like, obviously it's more expensive, more labor intensive, etc. But they were like, there's a better quality to the oil if we remove the stones right. and we only right. press the flesh. So there were machines that were made to allow uh, growers of olives and makers of oil who believe that that makes for a better oil, a more yeah. sophisticated oil, uh, you know, better properties, longer shelf life, etc. So they could produce it that way. But it was proven not to always be the case. You actually want the whole olive. Yeah. But long story short, what we're looking at is people picking by hand green olives delicately. They don't get bruised, etc., etc. And these olives are going into the curing, the table olive industry. But a few people, like my dad many years ago, and um, 40 years ago, and the man who owns the grove we're looking at today, believe that to make the best oil, you want these olives, the best olive. Mm -hmm. And this traditional way and cheaper way and cost-effective way, which has become a tradition in 56 years here, to only you know, use good olives for the table consumption and the runt goes into olive oil, mm -hmm. Um, that that's wrong, that mm -hmm. the olive oil that you get from that is still going to be better than 90% of what you have on a shelf in a supermarket in yes. the Western world that says extra virgin olive oil. It's still going to be better. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's the runt of the olives and it will give a lesser oil. Right. So what we're looking at is really understanding, which I hope we'll do when we go to the oil mill, what's good oil? Okay. What's yeah, a real extra virgin? What What's the you know, and is there a variation of quality within the label extra virgin, sure. which is the top grade of olive oil? Because right. then you have other labels, other grades. So one of the questions I have here, so we've got like, I think it's, it's about 10 pickers here in this area, but there's thousands and thousands or hundreds of trees. I mean, it's going to take them days and there's a tiny window in which all of these olives have to be picked. I mean, how are they going to do it? Do they just keep going through the night or? Or how is it just very intensive or do they get more workers in? Do they do eight hours a day. Mm -hmm. So they start, you know, 7, 8 a.m. and then they do about 3, 4 p.m. And that's the traditional all around here. And what happens is that these olives that have been brought to the mill once or twice a day, then yes. get milled. People have yeah. understood here, at least that's one quality, critical quality point that has absolutely gone into the tradition. Yes. They now know that really it is wrong to do as traditionally has been done to just amass the olives and then eventually mill them all together. Yep. Maybe to mill all of one farmer's olive at the same time, mm -hmm. they would wait days and days. But what happened, and that's the reason why I had you pick the olives and look at them over the next hours and days, what happens when olives are picked is they start fermenting, especially if they're really ripe and sure. darker and soft. And so um, olives need to be you know, crushed and turned into oil ASAP which is why some producers don't use these communal mills, which we talked about and we saw, and we're gonna look at it uh, at them to, again today, but they have their own estate. Yes, they all, and then they do produce. they have one here? No, they, they, they don't. don't. No. Okay, so. Uh, and so these guys, they work eight hours a day, and we said, this is a grove that has how many? 7,000 trees, I think. Mm -hmm. And so 
depending on whether it's a year with a lot of olives or fewer olives in the branches, which is something that depends on um, how well the pollination season went in May, June, how much pollen reached the buds and how many buds flowers were fertilized and will then turn into olive and whether we have had any type of you know weather events that have interfered with, yes. the, with the formation the growth of olives yeah. Yeah. depending on how on a specific crop it can be it can last two weeks it could last three four weeks it could last six weeks okay and they never like a farmer never knows how many pickers he can get together that year Someone may have hired them before he does, mm -hmm. even if they have agreements, even if, you know, it's a very sort of uh, random thing every season. How are you going to create your picking crews? Who's going to be there? How many people you can count on? Sure. And because it's such a, a particular, like specialized technique, you can't just bring in labor and say, okay, go and pick those because they don't have the skills. They can bruise the trees. They can pull off too many leaves and, and all of this. So, so it's very much um, a Sicilian, Sicilian, a Sicilian skill. It is, and the pickers we're looking at today are not Sicilian. They're actually Tunisian, mm -hmm. and uh, uh, you have to know that here in southwestern Sicily, we're obviously super close to Tunis, Tunis to Tunisia, and yeah. there has been uh, Tunisian emigration yes. uh, that started decades ago, and there are second generation, third generation Tunisians who live here, right. for whom this is, Home. they still yeah. speak Arabic and not you know, good Italian, if you will, or maybe a bit of Sicilian, etc. But this this may be home for them, and they're not seasonal migrant workers. Mm -hmm. But because obviously they still have family in Tunis, they welcome their relatives, and so you get a mix of Tunisian Sicilians and and Tunisians who just come as migrants. And so you, what you're looking at is that type of a picking crew. Right. Uh, okay. But they have been here for generations, and they have their know-how. But if they were hired in Tunisia yes. for a Tunisian olive oil operation, they would never be asked to. Tunis, you don't way. you don't have this. Mm -hmm. uh, what do you not have? You don't have this olive that goes into curing and olive oil making, or right. you know, there's a whole other uh, economics around it and tradition around making olive oil. So this is very specific to the Nocellara del Belice olive variety grown here in Casavetrano, which yes. is why the table olive, the number one table olive that comes out of this, is called Casavetrano olive in America. Um, right, because it's so unique. Okay, okay. To the variety of the olive, to the shape and flavor and texture and curing style. Curing is nothing else but a fermentation process or a process that will turn the olive into an edible product, mm -hmm, which mm -hmm. off the tree you can't eat an olive. No, no. Unless you said you yesterday you explained to me you you do it with either salt and water or with. Uh, uh, just caustics. salt if it's a very yeah so if it's a exactly if it's a green olive usually you have um, the traditional way is you put your olives into salt and water mm -hmm. which is a salt brine and natural fermentation will take place and this fermentation process takes about three months right there are other ways but this is just the most typical one and then you can be sure that the fermentation is over by six months okay it's a fresh product you want to keep it in a cool place etc and if you were to uh, put it in a jar, mm -hmm. the jar might explode because it might still be fermenting. Oh my so goodness. How okay, can yes, you so ship yeah. the most amazing, delicious, natural, healthy, uh, you know, cured olive yes. to abroad? You can't. So you, for, for the green olive to reach further destination, you have to stabilize it. You have to kill the fermentation or cure them without any fermentation. Right. right. And that's the caustic soda, the lye curing method. So you take your olives, green olives, 
put them in big vats of water, salt, and caustic soda. Okay, and which that, sounds really like a horrendous thing, like, but is it? Is it something that you would uh, do, use caustic soda? Uh, I would never use caustic soda. <laughs> I wouldn't want to, you know, these caustic soda olives are the Castavetrano olives. They're your sweetened, totally not bitter, tasteless, you know, slightly briny, salty olive that you have in your martini. The Spaniards were the first ones, I think, uh, if I have it right, to invent this production method. And there is an in-between production method, which is called Sevillana method, Seville, Spain, right? Mm -hmm. But here they use it as well, which is an in-between. There's a bit of fermentation, a bit of caustic soda. Right, right, right. The difference in the jar or in the bag of olives you buy or in the vat, if you're buying them open like that at the olive bar, is that the caustic soda liquid yeah. is clear. Yes. The one of the Sevillana is sort of amber-colored, but if you get this 100% natural product, which I can ship to you, not in summer, mm -hmm. in winter, and I can vacuum pack it in a pouch, and then you, as soon as you get it, you want to put that in a fridge, or ideally you open it, put it in a bucket, or mm -hmm. in a glass jar, and keep it in a cool place, ideally in a fridge. So it's doable. There's a window, because the olive is so full of natural preserving properties yes. that are good not just for its own shelf life, but yes, for, yeah. and obviously, whether it's a table olive or an olive oil olive, it's all, you know, valid, but it's also good for our body. So that you get a certain window of time in which you could still make a freshly uh, salt water, you know, seasonal olive available, to, mm -hmm. but you can't do it on a scale. No, you can't no, scale well, it up so this much. This is the problem, isn't it? When it's you're a talking fresh product. scale, yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's yeah. like, okay, yesterday we picked a persimmon, a Sharon fruit, a khaki, we call it here from the tree, mm -hmm. and it was the kind of variety that grows here that you can only eat once. It's totally mushy. Mm, it was delicious, <laughs> and it has to be soft and broken, yeah. like pomegranate. You know, you want you want it to be, but with persimmon, it's even worse. With pomegranates, you can eat it even though it's still whole. Mm -hmm. It needs to be very ripe. But with persimmon, it needs to be like where insects want to get to it and eat it before you get there. So you have a very little window. And yes. if you pick it when it's just a little bit, you know, when it's split, it's when it's not split, then it's unedible. Then it's right. just you can't eat it's it. It's almost telling you, right, I'm, ri I'm ripe, I'm ready for so you to eat. So that window of opportunity is really, really tiny, tiny, yeah. tiny. So I could never make those available to you. I could never put them in a beautiful little, you know, box with, with hay and all protected and ship them yeah, to you. It yeah, just yeah, wouldn't yeah. happen. It wouldn't, it wouldn't happen. You would, you know, what you would receive at the other end of the parcel when you was get smush. it. <laughs> would be ugly. <laughs> and so there's, you know, you have to know certain things to be able to figure out a market that you're going to build for a product. Okay. And so, yeah, this olive is quite unique, the Casavetrano olive. Whether it's caustic soda, stabilized as they call it, because that has a market, that's what people want. Yes. Or my favorite, which is salt and water, natural fermentation, Brian, you know, and I don't even wait for three months or six months. I just have it 10 days later when it's still super bitter. Yes. Because I just like the bitter taste. I could not eat an olive off a tree, but in 10 days of that kind of a brining, yes. I could totally enjoy it. But that's really an acquired taste. But okay. That's my favorite okay. thing. But okay. that I could never make available to anyone because that's the beginning of the fermentation. So even yeah. a pouch, five days, la days later, it would explode in yeah. that box. But this is this whole idea of transporting what you can get off a tree in a, in a, in a fresh manner, uh, transporting it in the same way and achieving the same flavor across the world to some place that doesn't grow olives. And it's not really possible. And this, this is 
limited, to, it's limitedly yeah. possible. Yeah. And so the best, if you make a compromise and you're like, I want to transport the best aspect or value of olives yeah. to somewhere far away from here, <laughs> distance, right? Yeah. Then what do I want to do? I really want to press them into oil. Exactly. exactly. And I want to press the green olive, which is at the top of its uh, game. Mm. Mm -hmm. A green olive that has not just been allowed to grow wild on the unpruned and untreated and uncared for tree that has never seen any natural animal manure or any favasia, any type of bean growth that is used to rejuvenate the soil and fix the, you know, keep the nitrogen in it, etc. So I want, I want a green olive grown like this one here, which mm -hmm. is meaty, round, takes its name nochilada from the walnut or large hazelnut because of its ridges. Yes. I want it to have that sort of beauty to it, that quality, those properties. And that's what I would want in my oil. I want that olive. Yes. Yeah, yes. However, if you buy a bottle of extra virgin olive oil, you really never know where it came from. So this is a big question and I, I, um, I podcast chatted with Sarah Wolferston, as, as you know, and we're going uh, Steve and I are going off to meet her in a week's time to, to go and harvest her olives with her. Hopefully they've survived the storms that we've just had over the last few days. Um, and she was you know, talking about this very fact about the quality of the olive oil that you have and that you can buy off the shelf compared to buying it direct from the producer. Uh, and um, this is a huge, you know, at a time where Everyone's talking about extra virgin olive oil, the importance of it, the polyphenols for, for health. And yet we also know that it's still very hard for us as an individual going into a supermarket to pick something that really is giving us um, those benefits. And, and how do we do it? I mean, from, from also hearing here in, in Sicily too that the stamping or the, the marking of olive oil, good from bad, and, and the quality controls are a bit, uh, they're, they're not very clear, and there seems to be a lot of uh, room for people getting away with not producing a good quality olive oil that's still coming from Sicily with the mark extra virgin olive oil. So <laughs> are we all doomed? <laughs> um, Big question, sorry. <laughs> or was it a rant? I'm not quite sure. <laughs> Both totally valid. They have their their reason why. And what can we do? <laughs> so every part in the world that produces olive oil, where olives are grown only for olive oil, will have a uh, tradition. Hmm. Now, obviously, if we're looking at Chile, maybe we can cut through. Yes. Just <laughs> yeah, let's cut through the, yeah, yeah. Cut through the olive groves. And Be, because it's beautiful yeah. and we like the contact with this the soil. This white, white blossomed rocket. rocket. Yeah. And this is farinacho, which is um, like a charred, spinach charred. Okay. And um, anyway, so I think that every place, including those new world places like Chile, Argentina, Australia, New Zealand, wherever new wherever olive oil making isn't um, an indigenous, you know, local um, autochthonous tradition, but it's a, a modern venture, mm -hmm. um, has a tradition, whether it's a 10-year-old, 20-year-old, 100-year-old, 3,000-year-old, like here, tradition. And the tradition will obviously influence the beliefs of producers. 
Mm -hmm. Independently of what science says, what the lab results tell you about the quality of your olive oil, or what the law tells you you should be marketing, uh, labeling your oil as, etc., etc. So that's a huge factor. Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. that's also a huge impediment if the tradition happens to be not exactly 100% the best way to make quality olive oil. Yes. Number two, I'm looking at a product that can be sold mm -hmm. all over the world following a certain standardized set of uh, labeling. Yes. The best quality olive oil is labeled extra virgin. Then there is the, what we call it, the ghost quality, the ghost grade, which is virgin olive oil. Yes. Who's ever seen virgin olive oil anymore? And then there is um, pumice oil, which is mash oil, mm -hmm. which is not edible unless it has been refined. Right. So it's refined oil. And I totally am forgetting the other, the last, there's one more labeling. And then it changes with countries that use wordage such as pure olive oil, all kinds of variations that okay. aren't the guidelines and the laws that the European community has agreed upon following the International Olive Oil Council. Um, guidelines that have been unified so there's all kinds of sort of country differences and yeah. so forth but long story short let's forget about the other guys the only thing you need to remember is that if I'm making a low-grade oil I am making a product that has no properties and that is in fact harmful mm -hmm. for my health so I need to somehow fix it what that means is that to produce it, produce, say, pumice oil, I yeah. need to take the residue from the first pressing, which yields olive oil, mm -hmm. and I take the waste, mm -hmm. and I put it through a chemical process, hence second pressing, quote-unquote, yes. and I obtain a product that is like petroleum jelly that needs to be fixed, mm -hmm. made edible. Mm -hmm. But that can travel under the label olive oil, or pure olive oil, for instance. Yes. People get confused. See? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, the use of words implies pure olive oil. This has to be good because it's pure. But of course, it's not understanding the labeling then. Yeah, so mm. who decides on the labeling? It's the laws of every country, or in this case, the European or the International Olive Oil Council's guidelines that get, you know, and so it's the lobbies that produce the, these sub-products of olive oil that mm -hmm. really you know, decide on the laws. It's not the best producer of the best extra virgin olive oil because it's labor intensive, it's costly, mm -hmm. and the profit margins are quite, you know, depending on where you're doing this, it's close to zero. You're happy yes. if you're not, you know, losing money. And why, why is that so? Well, it is so because olive oil is a product that people have learned, consumers have learned that they want. Mm -hmm. But not knowing about it means that they're buying stuff that is anything but what they want. It's just nowhere near what they think or they've been told they should want. Yes, yeah. Or they've tasted on a vacation in Mediterranean when they were, you know, at the little farm restaurant and having real olive oil, etc., etc. But it doesn't. So it's a very complex, uh, multifaceted problem. But to try and make it simple, the laws and the labeling doesn't protect the consumer. It doesn't help the consumer buy at the right price the product he wants to buy. Right. And so what do you need to know, because the laws aren't going to change anytime soon, what do you need to know to make sure you're buying a product that is really the best oil? So obviously you want to buy extra virgin and you don't want to give a damn about any of the other grades and qualities. Yeah, yeah. 
and then you need to... Point one. Well, point one. Yeah. And, and then the other grades and qualities are going to be much cheaper, and you're going to think, yeah, it still says olive oil, so I can afford that, I'm going to go for that. No, skip it. Mm -hmm. If you're going to buy pumice oil, mash oil, any other type of pure oil, whatever, you should probably buy um, any other non-olive oil, which is going to be equally chemically produced, mm -hmm. uh, but maybe less bad for you because it hasn't had the fixing okay. part, yeah. maybe. So we know that um, there is a problem with the content of monounsaturated, polyunsaturated, etc. Compounds, and we're supposed to use more of the monounsaturated and mm. not the wholly unsaturated, the PUFAs, etc., etc. And there is a huge lobbying effort from the producers of so-called vegetable oils, which pomace oil, mash oil, low-quality, low-grade olive oil belongs to, if you want. Mm -hmm. They're all extruded, extracted chemically mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. with solvents, which are petroleum right. chemical agents, etc., yeah. etc. Et and as you know, the heat the oxygen they will oxidize olives and olive oil and so when you think that these second-hand second-pressed olive oils are extruded or extracted with heat and pressure beyond the chemical use of hexanes etc etc I mean you're really getting a product that has nothing of the virtues and so why would you pay more for a low-grade low-label we're not even talking bad quality. We're just talking like really nothing to do with the olive. It happens to come from residue from the first pressing of extra virgin olive oil. Yes. But does it have anything that make it um, justifiable for you to spend a couple of pounds or euros more for that than you would for peanut oil, sunflower oil, any other rapeseed oil, uh, any other of the of the vegetable oils, yes. which are high in omega sixes and, and 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 or have a ratio of omega six to omega three, which is less healthy and are, you know polyunsaturated, etc. All kinds of issues with them. You know what I'm saying? So if you're looking at budget, you're thinking ah instead of sunflower because I I got that it's bad for you, it's vegetable oil. I'm going to go for the olive pomace oil. It's just a couple of Euro is more expensive, and I'm getting olive, right? So yeah, olive's yeah. good. Um, yeah, so olive I'm now like, having the healthy one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So don't. Yeah. No, yeah. no. Save those two bucks. You should don't, no. <laughs> don't waste them on the fake oil. <laughs> fake meaning anything, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what is extra virgin olive oil? Extra virgin olive oil is the juice that comes out of an olive that has been pressed mechanically without the use of any solvents, any chemical agents. Mm -hmm. And if it is made well without the use of hot water to increase the yield that you're drawing out of that crushed olive, mm -hmm. if it's cold pressed... Yes, this is one of the, the words that certainly on British labelling has uh, cold pressed, if it's extra cold, virgin Exactly. Olive if oil. it's cold pressed, it's going to be um, having more properties. Mm -hmm. And the parameters of properties and value that your oil has to have to fit into the extra virgin label depends not only on this production method, which has to be mechanical without the use of chemical chemicals, but it's also on the parameters that come out. And certain parameters are measured in a lab, mm -hmm. and the laboratory will give you these results. And if they're good, you can label your product extra virgin. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, why would they not be good? They would not be good if uh, the mill you're milling your olives at is dirty or using a lot of hot water right, to right. maximize the yield. Or it would be not good, those parameters would be not good if um, the olives you're picking are full of worms. Right, yeah. Hyper ripe, extremely ripe. 
they've been shaken off the trees, they've fallen onto the ground, maybe with nets, maybe they've just been, you know, sort of like broomed together with the old, you know, swept up, swept up exactly. Or so, off the mill exactly, floor. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So there's all kinds of things which can make your extra virgin olive oil, no matter whether it was directly pressed from an olive without the use of chemicals, not extra virgin. Right. That's where the grade virgin comes in. But virgin, quote unquote, that's where the grade virgin comes in because if the parameters are really too bad, it can't even fit in any of those grades. It's just not edible. Yes, yes. It's not considered edible. So imagine if this mash oil, which we just talked about being a vegetable oil with all kinds of problems and chemically produced, etc., etc., is bad for you directly. It just has no virtues. It's mm -hmm. bad for you, for your wallet, for your health, for your taste buds, for your food. If you try to bake an olive oil lemon cake with that kind of pumice oil because you're thinking I'm using the extra virgin expensive good one for the raw drizzling on my soup and salad but yeah. I'm going to bake the cake with the pure olive oil or whatever the lower grades are I'm going to save right if you try to do that then your cake is going to be disgusting mm. it's going to be greasy mm. olive fat it's going to be sort of sticky it's going to have all kinds of issues maybe yeah. not always right I'm sure yeah. there are exceptions because the pure and pumice oil mash oil category the label that grade if you will allows for blending of a bit of virgin extra virgin with it to uh, sort of fix it okay and yeah, because yeah. extra virgin is such a magical product yes a little bit can fix or improve a bad neutralize product. the qualities of okay. see what i mean yes. so the blending part blending in the olive oil world is huge which is why ideally you want an oil that is not just straight from a farmer and that farmer is transparent mm -hmm. in his communication about how he makes that oil yeah and yeah. you can trust maybe the farmer because somehow you have a way to trust the farmer because you've been there yeah because someone who knows hasn't because their communicational visual material you know their marketing is yeah whatever but you also want an oil that is ideally unblended mm -hmm. all from the olives from that farmer yeah or where the blend is an okay blend it's like a small production from a small farmer he gets together with other farmers and they're, they're wonderful olives, which yes. all yielded wonderful oil, are blended together. And they're all and they're all using the same technique and doing it the same way. So or without, because we can't live in, in a, we don't live in an ideal no. world. <laughs> However much we'd like to, yes. <laughs> so hopefully, you know, close, close, <laughs> a, clo a close, you know, maybe someone's raking them off the tree, but they're not falling on the floor nets, but the nets are suspended. Maybe they're doing that because they're not harvesting a nochilara type chunky meeting olive, but it's a smaller type of counter pollinator uh, variety, such as the Bianco Lila, which is a smaller olive. It's a different, it grows differently, so you can't really, harvesting it by hand is a bit of an issue. So people there really use rakes in Bianco Lila world, which is the next valley over there west. Okay. It's Bianco Lila world. And so they rake them. Um, and they use hand rakes, but good, the good, and they do it because that kind of olive, the way it grows, it's the best, most efficient way of harvesting it. It's just sure, impossible. Okay. So it's just because what you've been saying about these particular olives too, they have to be picked by hand. You can't use you the can, rakes. Yeah, you can do it. So why not do it? Mm. Other olives, it's really impossible. The way they grow in clusters and, you know, the, their size, you yeah, know, just yeah. like picking it by hand is, you you, know, you you would be stripping the branches, of right. which in which case, use the rake. Yes, yeah, yeah, yes, just exactly. You know, yeah. or the tickler, or so. There's all kinds of uh, micromanaged aspects or critical quality critical points, such as the nets on the floor, so mm -hmm. you can trample on the olives. Yeah, 
or there is a contact of the olive with the actual soil and grass underneath, which may be humid from rain, wet, which may have uh, in, imbibed too much sunshine and be really warm and accelerate the oxidation. Which should probably be happening at the moment, because after all the rain and now you've got this lush. So, and who, but I've only seen suspended nets once somewhere as I was driving through and I stopped and took pictures. I don't even remember when or how, or, but it was a unique sight. You right. know? Yeah. So, Labor intensive, more costly, more time for a better production. Yeah. More skill, more attention, and someone who manages and knows what they're doing and isn't cutting corners and mm -hmm. isn't compromising on quality. So there's so many layers, subtle layers yeah. and points in which things can choices that can be made where things, the quality can go up or down. Sure. For sure, sure. like uh, net, no net, rake, no rake bucket no bucket, how quickly to the mill. Do I have a mill close to where I live? Mm. Does it even make sense for me to drive my truck or whatever to the mill twice a day or should I just keep them here for the three days of the harvest and then I bring everything there because it's a long trek because I'm very far away, my grove is far away from the closest mill. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Stuff like that. So the quality of an olive mm. oil, what you're seeing here is going to give you really some of the best. It can be done even better than that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, like at your father's. <laughs> Where I'm pretty sure that if you saw and you understood these things after maybe a couple of, well, just maybe one harvest, but maybe it would take you two harvests to be here full immersion, yes. you would get it. You'd observe, and you'd, you'd be, be observing like, and seeing the different techniques and saying, hey, that's the, yeah. So, Gabriella, we need to go crack back to on, go yep. back to the car. Um, and actually, this very nicely leads on to a discussion which we will have in a, in a moment or so about, I mean, you spent. Uh, most of your your growing up years are not here in Sicily except for in the holidays and coming here in the harvest periods and your interest in, in olive oil and in olives sorry and then and then also in the land itself and this is what I'd really like to talk to, talk to you about and also let the podcasters or get the podcasters to to hear and to understand your connection with the earth and the land here in Sicily and what it means to you. Oh, when do you want to We're talk about We're going to talk about it in a minute. <laughs> We're going to drive to the mill first. Mm. La molitura oggi è The molitura oggi so wow, yeah. So, Maybe it's more. These are it? two lines. They're called lines. Two lines, linea. Yeah. And uh, uh, these are your half-sized crates, and which are like one, a meter square, aren't they? Yeah, they're two hundred kilos of olives, and that's your full-size crate. That's four hundred kilos of olives. Okay. And uh, these are the funnels into which the oil, the olives are put. Yeah. And then they. I've already started putting, bringing in. Okay. We'll come so, right back And then back they here. come back up. The loose leaves. Okay. And here they get washed. Mm -hmm. Here the leaves come out. Yeah. Green olives. Green olives. Into the crusher. Yeah. Qua c'è la frangitrice. This is the crusher. Okay. Yeah. And this is where the miracle happens. They have four. Two, three, four. They have these four. different, four different 
fins, vats, And each vat is a different owner. Or maybe someone who has a lot of olives, you'll need two vats or four vats. Okay. And so, but oh, you can control which yes. olives get, not so much a crusher, it's going to crush any type of olive, but in here, the malaxation, which is 40 min minutes of a coil, you can step up if you want to see the yeah. coil. Yeah. We'll see it. Oh, yeah, yeah. So you separate them and then you open and close and see, okay, and so the guy whose olives are now coming out into the centrifuge, with the, which is going to get rid of the water, yeah. right? So the water comes out away, then there's one more bit of solid that comes out as well, to yes. with the water, and the oil comes out here. Okay. Uh, it gets underground and it comes out here. Sure, okay. And so they put their, depending on how much oil they're making, they put their vats underneath the spout. And they can That's one more centrifuge okay. for one last bit of water to be extruded. So they can tell from the number Expelled. of crates they've got, like it, it, macer it macerates down to how much oil. Oh, okay, so, so una vasca contiene quanti chili di oliva? 250 vasca. Maximum 250 kilos of olive. So if you have a big 400 kilo crate, you'll need two. And if you are having a smaller one that's 200 kilos, one will be enough. Okay, and then how much oil does that produce? I depends, suppose it depends on the that's size called the of reza. the olive. La reza dell'olio is, the, um, is the percentage of oil that comes out from your olives, and yeah. it's gonna depend on your specific olives, yeah. what area, what contrada your olive grows, mm -hmm. because your olive trees will produce different types of reze, mm -hmm. different types of olives that have more oil in them, less oil in them, sure. depending on where they grow. Right. And, and, and people here have a lore, it's a local lore, of the olives of Contrada Sejo have a higher yield. Yeah. Yield is the actual word, the translation for reza. Have a high oil yield than the Contrada Bresciana, than the Contrada Canalotto. So these are the different olive contrades, which are these farm areas, sure, just okay. on the outskirts of town. Yeah. La Contrada con più resa, qual è? Allo specifico. So he's like, it's it's not just the area which determines the yield. It's a specific farmer how he grows his uh, trees and his olives. Okay, and when he's picked them, I suppose. And when he's picked them, exactly. Yeah. So, in fact, it, the amount of olive that is in an, in an olive will be the same from the moment it's, it hits ripeness, which is when it goes into the white phase, when it's bright green and it starts developing this natural um, sort of waxy lactobacilli, sort of whatever content on the outside of the skin. Mm -hmm. and that's when it starts to veer so that's a ripeness moment the olives are still green and that yeah. window of perfection is just a few days and then it starts going pink purple black wow. so the amount of oil doesn't change from the moment it heats ripeness yeah. it's just that the amount of water it contains gets lower yes and so it yeah. looks and it appears like the riper olive has more oil because it's the water con content yeah. that yeah, goes yeah. down yeah. so it's a wrong belief really yeah. to think that um, yeah. At least from what I know. And also because, and also the riper it gets, the less polyphenols it has as well. The more oxidized the oil, the less quality, and the more yeah. susceptible to all kinds of parasite, a ripe fruit. Of course. Nice and yes. mushy. Yeah. Ready for the taking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, ready for the laying of your eggs, whatever, depending on what parasite you are. Yes, okay. Grazie. So we need to come back at two o'clock. Grazie, torniamo. E la gattina? questa qua è ormai. E la gattina di casa? Bellissima. Little out of the house. Very yeah. slim, isn't she? Yeah, little, very young, very slim, very social. <laughs> okay, guys. It was nice to be able to see the mill without the noise. Yes. Because as yes. soon as the machines start, we can't record anything.
So Gabrielle has driven me back into Castelvetrano, uh, Castelvetrano even, uh, and we're sitting in Piazza Reg Regina, Regina Margherita. Margherita. Queen, Queen Margaret. Queen Margaret. Um, with a fountain that's dried out. They've lost their heads. But it's surrounded by trees. We're sitting in the shade and it's really nice. And now, Gabriella, just to come back to my question that I asked before we left the olive grove about you and your connection to Sicily and the land. Um, we've talked a lot about olives and about cheese and bread and food generally and we could go on and on and on and talk about this but I really want to just dive a little bit deeper into who you are and um, why you came came back to Sicily if, if that is the case because you were in Basel grew up there you were in New York you had a career as an art historian in, in New York and then because of your father's uh, olive farm here you came back to to help him but that's such a a break and a culture shock for you to go from that world uh, and new york to come to sicily and what was that transition like and what what's what's drawn you into this whole food industry and and th this connection to the land which is you know you're so enthusiastic about it all <laughs> <laughs> I think I've overwhelmed you with my statement. <laughs> um, where to start? So when I was born in Switzerland, I was born in a town which is Basel, which is in a three-corner area of Switzerland because it is a land that is also bordering with France and Germany. And those parts of France and Germany are Alsace and the Black Forest mm -hmm. and their farm, farming uh, communities. Yes. And I would spend all my time on a bike, um, alone for the most part, and on weekends, when I was still very little, my parents would take, uh, would take us kids on car trips uh, through Alsace and, and the Black Forest, but also because my mom's brother was living, or still lives in Alsace, mm -hmm. and my Polish grandpa lived in the Black Forest. And we would go eat for lunch on Sundays or Saturdays and, and, and roam the fields and pick fruit and vegetables. And sometimes we knew the farmers, sometimes we didn't. Um, but we only did a little bit of picking, right? I mean, not too much of a crop stealing action going there. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. So there was always a connection to climbing on trees for fruit, nuts, picking, looking at what's on the ground, mushrooming, lots of chanterelles, my mom's specialty, mm -hmm. um, mushrooming, etc. So. Growing up with that means that when then I would spend the summer time in Sicily, which I sometimes spend in the Swiss Alps, sometimes in Sicily, I would, um, I would automatically be drawn to the farming activity, which is the main activity here. Yes. It's really rural, it's Very farm, that's what it is. Yes. Yeah. And so I would be drawn to, it's just like a habit or a habitus, more than a habit or a habit, I don't know, it just becomes second nature to be curious about what's growing on the ground, what's growing on the trees. Mm -hmm. And then because my father was sort of a, he cooked as much as my mom in the household, and he was obsessed with genuine food, as he called yes. it, meaning Sorry, organic. I have to interrupt you, because the bells are oh. ringing of San, San Giovanni, is it? 
yeah, yeah. And this is for mass, is it? Cool for mass, okay. But I'm sure we can continue. So you're, a lot of organic food that you were, you were eating. Lots of organic food before organic was a label, before yes. the word even meant anything. Yes. And in fact, he didn't use the word in Italian, biologic, biological, organic. It just wasn't a thing. He called it genuine. Mm. Genuine, genuine food. Yeah. Genuine. So grown by someone he knew, ideally. Or in any case, you know, a short chain between where the fish was swimming and the animals the meat were uh, grazing. Yes. And being slaughtered. And our plates. There was a very short trip or a distance or, you know, not so many middlemen, etc. So I grew up with that. And then he had grown up on a farm in Sicily and he came back to Sicily, retired, made olive oil that was like no other oil in the world because he put together concepts which were to harvest olives when they're still green, but instead of turning them into curing olives, you make olive oil from mm -hmm. these top quality olives, mm -hmm. and then you press them in a clean mill. Mm -hmm. And at some point, no mill is going to open early enough for you to press your green olives, which yes. people here, um, they made oil from later olives. The green olives were only going into the curing market, table olive market, so at some point he had to build his own mill. Mm -hmm. So I grew up with all of that throughout my childhood, my teenage years. I had my own bottle of olive oil and uh, I went to boarding school. I had my own bottle of olive oil always in my little locker <laughs> <laughs> together with my Swiss chocolate branch and you know, Blanche Cahiers. Was... But anyway, so which the nuns would distribute us for tea time. It was like, do you want the chocolate or healthy whatever alternative? I'll have the chocolate, please. But I also <laughs> had my bottle of <laughs> amazingly healthy and delicious olive oil. And the world didn't know about these things and he just had these intuitions early on. Uh, he sent me to kindergarten when I was three, four years old, and the kindergarten teacher called and said to my parents, this is shameful, how did you send your kid to school with dry, hard crackers? Because it was the days of, I guess, the beginning of the Nutellas and all the Nestle foods and all that, right? And people were having soft brioche type of things. Yes. For, or, or, I don't know, white bread sandwiches or whatever it is. And that was basically a Sardinian also available in Calabria and Puglia. It's a Sardinian type of cracker that is made from durum wheat and sesame seeds. Mm -hmm. And it can come round in a sort of flat donut type shape. Mm -hmm. uh, and they call it frisella when it's sort of a little bigger in Southern Italy. Or it's just a cracker. And I grew up eating stuff like that, you yeah, know? But yeah. the world around us was obviously nowhere ready, didn't know about it. Yeah. So it is clear that after growing up in urban environments, which were always close to rural environments, which I always sought out in New York City, I would bicycle or skate all the way up to the Hudson River, Parkside, whatever, nature reserve, Palisades, you name it. It's always nature, nature, finding nature. And that means any kind of element, whether it's a river, a seaside, a forest. Yes. So that's part of who I am. And so I was always involved in tasting, having people taste the olive oil in those other worlds where I lived, it was always a hobby. Mm -hmm. Because there were distributors, people doing stuff professionally, but I was always available and happy to share my two cents. And, and I was learning from professionals because olive oil, sommelier tasting things like that, courses were beginning to be a thing. Yes. The International Olive Oil Council was starting to be a bit more, uh, less lobbied maybe, and more, you know, towards like scientific, positive outcomes of properties of oil and be a little bit more tight about or stringent about their standards to include small high quality producers and not just international industrial olive oil mm -hmm. quote unquote mm -hmm. producers. 
So I was involved in all of that. So when I come to Sicily, I'm basically moving here because I have a boyfriend who's a chef at the time. He falls in love with Sicily on a short Easter vacation. And it's 2003, I think, April. Mm -hmm. And my dad, who just, who's retired there for a few years already at the point, at that point, and the farm is doing well, the olive oil is doing well, etc. He's dying to have one of his children come and, and be involved, be involved and, yeah. and, and expand, etc. And so somehow, although I put up much resistance, my boyfriend and I, I um, put our uh, careers in hold and we moved to Sicily. Mm -hmm. Our first website talked about Sicily being a destination because it was not a destination. It was a bit yes. of a niche thing for a few food and cultural tourism lovers, but you know, there were a few travel and food authors in the world that had written about us and the olive oil already, so we were out in the press. There were articles in important magazines such as Traveler, Food and Wine and stuff. So it was enough that uh, one could build hospitality yeah, yeah. spaces and make it a destination. So as I'm sharing what I love for guests who stay with us, as I'm teaching olive oil tasting, taking them on the farm, showing them where the food that's in their plate every day on our lunch and dinner tables is growing, yes, doing 100% yes. self that connection, that between connection what's, et cetera. Yeah, going onto your and, mouth. And yeah. they're putting their you know, bare yoga feet into the warm soil in the orchard, and they're learning about what grows wild and spontaneous, what's farmed. Why is this better, and how do we fertilize, and why is it important, and what do we use, and you know, the watering, and all these things, and when do we harvest, and when is a product at its best expression, mm -hmm. or past its prime, when, when is too early, too early, but when is too early also interesting, and when does a lemon tree have five crops a year, and you can make green limoncello, and yet yellow limoncello, and what are the properties and the flavors, and so we're producing all these incredible things, and so I'm just sort of riffing on I guess a seed that has been planted in me very early on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And for me, it's fun. It's second nature, and at some point, it just becomes a tourism business. Yes, yeah, yeah. Because all of my passions, which I've shared for free to anyone who booked a retreat with us, or a stay with us, or a cooking class with us, whatever I was offering, I was like, oh, but you should also not miss that and see that and da da da. So it just. That's where it grew, it grew from. from. So today there's an offering mm -hmm. of services and experiences that you can book with me. And I labeled it Key to Sicily, Gabriella's Key to Sicily, mm -hmm. which is really your or anyone's Key to Sicily. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Interesting. It's a lovely terminology as well to use. And, and, and you're also, we talked off recording about you've begun writing a book um, about, and I'm putting this on the podcast to hold you accountable to get this book finished. From New York City to Sicily. Right? From the Big Apple from to the, the Big Olive. From the Big Apple to the Big Olive. You asked me if I'd come back here, so I never lived here, so nor anywhere in Italy. Yes. Um, so I never came back to Italy in a way. Uh, my Italian is really self-taught, which mm -hmm. is okay because, I mean, it's not so much of a feat of mine because my father is a literate person. He's a lover of classics and languages. and speaks very good French and so forth and so Italian you know was if I if I misspoke or if I made mistakes as I was learning from listening yes. I was corrected and I was put you know books into my hands classics and stuff to read so I kind of learned Italian like that I yeah. studied it in school so I never came back to Italy but uh, I came back to guess I guess part of my family's roots mm -hmm. And I discovered as I was starting to write this memoir whose title, From the Big Apple to the Big Olive, was born one day when a journalist um, interviewed me 
as he was saying, oh, so you started a social change movement, um, civic whatever, awareness whatever movement, with programs to present to whoever's in charge politically and in public administration of the city to improve things, uh, to make olive oil a destination here for tourists to be able to come, people to experience olive oil 360 degrees and whatever. And so are you going to run for uh, mayor or something at the next elections? <laughs> and I just went like, no. Uh, and he was like, well, that's odd. And also what's odd is you came back because he didn't know I wasn't from here. He just assumed I'm from here and I went away and I came back. Yeah. And I answered to him after a few seconds, you know, not knowing exactly, you know, how to explain to him a long story and make it short. I just said, well, what's more natural than to go from the Big Apple to the Big Olive? Mm -hmm. And that's how the article is titled reverse migrant from the Big Apple to the Big Olive. Yes. And uh, that's years later when I was writing a cookbook, family recipes and so forth, and I'm also a private chef, so I was um, always asked by my clients about certain recipes and what am I using, why does it taste so good and whatever. So I'm always obviously sharing what kind of ingredients you need, how it needs to be grown and harvested and cooked and treated in the kitchen for your food to be not just tasting really good, and your daughter, who you say has never eaten a green leaf, to suddenly love salad, and you're asking me, what did you put in a salad? You know, so I'm explaining things, and yeah. I'm teaching things. So at some point, I'm like, okay, a cookbook has to happen. Mm -hmm. Plus, there are articles out in newspapers and magazines about my family recipes with the olive oil, etc., by reputable authors. So it just seemed natural that I should write a cookbook at some point, because my father wasn't writing a cookbook. He was handing out these recipes, and everyone was writing them up, but sometimes with credits, sometimes without, who cares? But yeah, it was just clear I have to write a cookbook. Sure. And as I'm writing a cookbook, I'm like, but I can't really tell you about this recipe without giving you the story of how it came to be because it's unusual. Yes, yes. yes. Because it's like, is this Sicilian cuisine? Well, some of it is and some of it is just personal, creative intuition or genius or putting one and one together. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so I'm like, I have to write the stories. And so, oh, I have to write the reason why I'm writing the stories. So there's a memoir and cookbook project. Right, okay. That's how it was, that's how, how it was born. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And alongside this or running parallel is your your kind of big idea <laughs> um, now that you are you've been in Sicily for now is it 19 19, 19 yeah. years um, and, and drawing on what you just said about the child eating eating a, a, a rucola a, you know a, a bit of lettuce for the first time is this connection with in, indeed Sicilians and Italians with their own what's on their own doorstep and food, and then ex sort of expanding that to grow the understanding of eating well, eating healthily, and eating from their own land, and, and having more pride in that, that countryside and the, and the landscape. Um, because what we saw from traveling around a lot was also the amount of rubbish that's tipped into the landscape that nobody seems to care about. Maybe they do, but they don't know how to, and it's, it's this, obvious connection that needs to be sort of um, born or, or germinated into people's mind that they can do something as individuals become more responsible. Yeah, so my big project at some point it became clear as I was wondering why am I still here? Because there is a social disconnect, there's a cultural disconnect and I, um, I suffer a lot from the absurdities or the uh, you know apparent, apparent paradoxes why do farmers care about their olive groves so well, but then they go and throw all of their rubbish on the corner of the road of a beautiful, you know, old medieval church with the most beautiful olive grove in the background. So what's, 
because it's outside of their property. So what's collective, what's public is nobody's mm -hmm. and must be defaced, must be, you know, exploited, is free for the taking. What, where, where does that come? So there are different theories born out of sociological, ethnographic, anthropological, whatever studies, and there are not enough of those, by the way, we need more <laughs> of those for the specific people of Sicily and Southern Italy, and maybe the Southern Mediterranean in general. But there is a stigma attached to, well, there's a taboo attached to this because, you know, then it becomes a bit of a north versus south, you know, racist sort of discourse. And so people tend to steer clear, I guess, even in academia of these uh, subjects like that. But anyway, so to bring it back to uh, the big project, I call it a big project because at some point I was like, why am I still here? Yes. We are being bombarded by noises of all types, including now. Is it a helicopter in here that the is? Anyway. So, the big project. Why am I still here? I'm like, okay, I'm still here because I, I love sharing, because I have a job, a profession, and I have ties to um, my, my rescue, dog rescue. So, I have still dogs that are unadopted, and I don't want them to end up in lifelong jail because shelters here are no kill. Mm -hmm. So I'm like, I, I'm not going to abandon them. There's enough of that happening already. And, and I've made my own mistakes, etc. in that field. So I just kind of want to um, live it out and see where it takes me. And in the meantime, I'm discovering more about my family roots, about transgenerational trauma, about all kinds of things that have relevance uh, for my history, for me, etc. And will have relevance for my nephews. I don't have any children, but I have two sisters, each have two kids. Yes. And I want them to be free of burdens, yeah. or at least give them the tools to be if they ever choose to want to be, or at least give them the information about their family histories that they might need. And so I'm discovering things by being here. And I'm discovering things about myself, and I'm realizing how little I know about myself. <laughs> and I'm That's doing- That's true of a lot of us, I think. <laughs> exactly, right. And as I'm doing this, I'm, I'm doing it through um, a reconnection mm -hmm. to myself yes and that reconnection happens through the connection I have with living beings animals nature food and connecting other people to these things yes yeah to what good and healthy food grown well etc and you can do for your soul can yeah. do for your spirit can do for your health so I'm connecting people to that and I hope that they will cultivate this and seek it out more so that we're less leaving less space for empty calories and industrial foods and processed, you know, bagged, processed, uh, unhealthy stuff on a plate. Yes, yes. And, and grow more awareness, etc. So I'm just trying to crowd out certain things which I feel, feel are very, uh, are, just, are just taking over and I'm just doing my small bit. So as yeah. I'm, you know, reconnecting people or connecting people to this knowledge through all the senses, through the experience of coming to Sicily, and I'm realizing that where it, leaves more of a mark and where it is more efficient uh, um, an operation is with their children mm -hmm. my clients children and where I realized okay uh, there's this thing I have with animals there's this thing I have with young children uh, so I am an educator I am a connector mm -hmm. of people mm -hmm. and of experiences and I have a I guess a talent of knowing where you're coming from and how to best uh, introduce you to tools which there may be more than I have at my disposal, but the ones I have, mm -hmm. I've discovered and I know how to use and present and make available. There, there's a connection I can make between you and these um, elements that 
will give you something to bring back to um, foster your own growth, to neutralize any negative things going on yes. yeah, in yeah. your life, in your health maybe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Who knows, right? Who am I, a nutritionist? No, who am <laughs> I, you know? I don't know, it's just things that I've discovered that are true and backed by science when it comes to food, nutrition, etc. And that happen to exactly match the indigenous wisdom and the, my dad's food uh, oriented, you know, health oriented food consciousness, which I grew up with. Yeah. yeah and I'm yeah. just putting it all together and I'm trying to bring it to the people and their children, especially. Right. Because right. most of the uh, clients and tourists I have that I take care of groups, etc., are families with children. Right. right. And so, obviously, if you're someone who writes or who is a journalist, etc., this kind of information is really interesting because it's um, it gives you different facets of how to talk about the Sicilian cuisine, the Sicilian tourism exper experience, mm -hmm. etc. So it's not just the pretty sights, the pretty sounds, the pretty smells, the good smells, the fragrance, the taste, etc. There's layers to this. Sure. So my big project is all of a sudden I woke up one day and I went like, oh, when I finish my book, I'm going to launch these summer camps for families with children or just children being sent with caretakers, I, I get a lot of people who have who travel with babysitters, etc., and children who come with their babysitters. And so these are summer camps that would then simply uh, be experientially rich for the children to discover all kinds of things. And the main aspects around which these experiences rotate are food, mm -hmm. where it grows, so we forage. Yep. We go, also we go truffling with children mm -hmm. and dogs, oh, so there's animals, there's yes. a bit of that going on, which opens a whole world for them. A yes. working dog that works for truffles, that isn't exploited, that is of the breed of the Lagotto Romagnolo, which is very soft and gentle and, and, and calm and quiet, and, and, and you know, teaching children about things, simply through the experience. So the, the podcasters listening to this conversation um, and are thinking, I'm across the world. I'd love to come to Sicily. I want to meet Gabriella in Castelvetrano. I want to do this. How do they get in touch with you? Thank you. Right now, <laughs> they get in touch with me through either on Instagram. My handle is Gabriella Sicily, mm -hmm. and uh, there's a uh, there's a Facebook page that goes with that automatically. Okay. Uh, I don't actually manage it. It's just sort of like sometimes things get reposted there on Facebook. And the key to Sicily. Um, there's a website that has my first name and last name, which is GabriellaBikina.com. Okay. And there's a page there dedicated to Key to Sicily, which is a tourism services. Brilliant. Because okay. I do other things, so to stay afloat. And so yes. <laughs> there's all of my other activities and professions. But there's also that tourism activity, which happens to be the main one, really. And it's Key to Sicily, and they can contact me through the webpage. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Gabriella. I mean, we've, I've just had the most magical two days, and I, my senses have been hit strongly. <laughs> and and I've only got as far as Castel Trevano. I've still got to go to Musabelli and across to uh, uh, Villa Rosa, Enna, Catania, and beyond, Mount Etna. So, um, Thank you for, for sharing so much of your time with me and I look forward to coming back and sharing your journey with podcasters in the future. Thank you very much, Emma, for stopping by. <laughs> oh, take care. Okay, to all you podcast listeners out there, I hope you have enjoyed this podcast. Um, I've certainly been incredibly inspired. I hope you have too. If you have enjoyed it, please do share with your friends. Please do um, write a rating and a review because this is how my podcast guests reach a wider audience and this as you know is what this podcast is all about um, 
If you uh, want to know more about what I'm up to, have a look at my site, travellingthrough.co.uk. But for now, wherever you are in the world, take care and thanks for listening. But don't go away. If you're interested in more, stay tuned to listen to the excerpts of my journey around the countryside with Gabriella in her car, including a trip to a Norman chapel with Arabic influences, as well as picnicking and eating fruit tasting the wild foods of Sicily, which were abundant, and Gabriella was a perfect guide to explain everything that I was seeing. I hope you enjoy this second half. Hawthorne has many properties, and look, this look is, at that. Yeah. This is a fruit. Yeah, with a lovely I yellow centre yeah. and a pip. Yeah. You have to cook those, though. You can't eat those raw, uh, I don't think. You could, you? once they're, once they're um, riper than that, a little more brown, brown and let yeah. it, right? Yeah, yes. a little, yeah. But not like that, we wouldn't. Right? No, that's just... But let's a dead see. one, anyway. Yeah, exactly. Wow. Mmm. It's like a very mealy apple. Okay. Oh, yum. Is it good? Let me oh, try. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, if you like wild mealy apples. Well, it's not necessarily my favourite, but I'm willing to try. But it definitely isn't oh, disgusting at all. Oh, no, that's all right. That's good. You can. You don't have to put the whole thing in your. Yeah, exactly. Just sort of chew on it. You press it. The mush. Mmm. The flesh comes out almost mm, mm. like that. Yeah, it's not oh, bad. Oh, yeah, it's not bad. And it has two seeds. Maybe one of mine fell out. Yeah. Okay, two seeds. I want so to, there's oh, a difference between the ones that have one seed and the, one that have, the ones that have two seeds. Mm -hmm. um, there's one that is called mm, Monogina, which is the one-seeded one. And the other one is Crategus Azzaloros, which is... Uh, so this is Crategus Monogina. Mm -hmm. And then there's Crategus adzaloros, and sometimes you find them um, in very close proximity. And the Crategus adzaloros can be either red or yellow, and it has a bigger leaf. Right, I've and seen the, the yellow ones. We get them. Hawthorne, exactly, yes, yeah. is, um, is only going to be uh, red, and it's going to have a smaller leaf. Right, right. But uh, I'm thinking this might not be the Hawthorne, this might be the Crategus, because the leaves are big. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm not a okay. botanist, right? Just, just so we're clear. Just a forager. I mean, I love wild uh, heirloom uh, fruit and vegetables. And the fact that it has two seeds, or this one only has one. See, it's hard to, to tell. I would have to see them side by side uh, as a good art historian. I need both paintings side by side and tell you which one's <laughs> which what, who's, <laughs> who's this one? and which one is the original. <laughs> so I'm a little confused, but this one looks like a spinapucci, which in Italian is a word for um, the hawthorn, which is Crategus monogina. Yeah. Um, and if it were uh, Azzaloro or Inzalora, Zalora, these are all the Sicilian names for Crategus Azzaloros, which is this other hawthorn yes. which has the yellow and the red okay um then how would i know i would look at the seeds i would look at the leaves and right now i'm confused well that's fine that's part of being human isn't it you've got is. to see them side by side it, it just shows that you do have to check you know yeah, you, you never take anything for granted and they sort of taste the same so yeah. it's hard to say but yeah. the, and this is the regular this is the regular yellow flowered uh, arugula so Arugula. this, this yeah. is uh, Diplotaxis tenuifolia. Tenuifolia, tenue, if you study Latin, it means uh, soft, tender leaf. Yeah. That's your regular arugula. And just it growing yellow. right yeah. on the curbside here. Everywhere, yeah. everywhere, yeah. everywhere, everywhere. We just saw the white uh, well rocket, yes. which is Diplotaxis erucoides, 
So this is Diplotaxis tenuifolia. And it's a, they're both, they're looks both like it's um, a bigger leaf as yeah, well on it, this one. It's a bigger it? leaf and it, uh, this flavor is really, the smell is already like arugula oh, gosh, right away. Very much you so, isn't it? You want to put this on your pizza very, immediately. Yeah, um, probably not this roadside one, but... Uh... No, no, exactly. <laughs> and then there's wild fennel here, look. This is the typical, this is the Finocchietto Selvatico. Yeah. It's your Sicilian wild fennel, which grows like a little green, yes, gentle yes. bush like that. And it's we typical. We have that in the UK as well. Exactly. Yeah. And it's amazing for all the fish recipes, obviously, yes. and the sardines, the blue fish. So the typical, I guess, national, quote unquote, national Sicilian dish is pasta con le sarde, sardine pasta. Uh -huh. Its main ingredient is fennel. It's fennel, okay. In the cooking water and in the sauce and raw and cooked, there's like different ways in which you can accentuate it presence brilliant or just throw it in there as well yeah you need to chop it and it needs to be that young otherwise you can't do pasta when it's sad no, it's now very when it's light sprouts, green isn't it yeah. when it goes uh into full uh fledged sprouting and flowering it will be that's the same that's this plant oh it's huge isn't it yeah and that big from that you would pick the seeds you would get the right. seeds right so okay so it's got, go what we're looking no. at is a big stem no we won't no. clamber it's across a, it that it's, a, it's a very <laughs> thorny thorny slope very yes. vertical but it's got a very thick stem with a flower on it and and which then goes to the seed yeah it's already yeah. seeding yeah the uh, flowers are yellow see it's less and yeah. less it's more and more into this darker sort of uh, silvery uh, green yes grayish yes. green and it's it's very nice against the drop those the backdrop of a sea of old 200 year old nocciolara trees, trees yeah, right nocciolata 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 and del belice because this is the belice river valley and the variety okay. the nocciolata del belice variety of olives is different from the nocciolata etnea from etna okay two nocciolaras. So right and I take it you can tell from this from the size and the shape of the olives as and well the as trees and, and the, the leaves. trees and yeah, the leaves. Yeah, okay. yeah. It's not always Everything. super easy because there's uh, 700 varieties across Italy. So yeah. and here in the, this area, there's plenty. Yeah. And then there's also intermingling and old. But I'm I'm really passionate about um, you know these different varieties and the history and which pollinate with which and yeah yeah yes it's very windy. my goodness you've got you've got a lifetime of research <laughs> research and, and to passion do and, and writing to do <laughs> and is this is this um, a herb as well this no this looks is a bit this like, is like, a like a weed actually okay it doesn't smell like anything no. now everything smells like fennel right <laughs> <laughs> well it is right next to the fennel See, and also you've crushed it on your that's, finger that's fennel from uh, last year that's dry right. totally and you can still see right from yes yeah yeah and this is whoops yeah that's oh yes okay so it's basically that yeah. further along so those seeds yeah. are there seeds on there yeah. there are they're flowers still flowers oh, that yeah. have, when they seed the seed is bigger um it's this dark gray type of it's it's chunkier it's more yeah. like a regular if you let a regular common um the fennel bulb the one yes. you use for eating for yeah salad, if you let that sprout, you'll get the same type of seeds, seeds that you get. Okay. Yeah. And you've got some brambles yeah, here as yeah, well. Yeah, so do yeah, they, are they... Um, yeah, people don't eat them because they're not very juicy. They're okay. sweet. They don't have tartness. And okay. so, as you know, a bramble that's just flat sweet doesn't really, without tartness, yeah. no contrast, doesn't do much for No, it. you don't make jellies from it. Yeah, so no, it, nothing, oh, nothing. Okay. But it's, it's still, I use it. I use it in my decoration on the table, cooking, yeah. you know, just... Yeah, just for my dishes. There's another two uh, hawthorn trees. Oh, here comes another rainstorm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We just abandoned the car in the middle of the road with the engine running. Laura, it's the other one. Look. Oh, okay. Wow. No, this is a wild pear. This, this isn't this is even a crategus. This is a wild pear. Very this small This is like pears. a cider type of pear, but okay. not not a sorb. It's not a. Um, 
um, it's not a service tree, it's a wild type of pear. It's okay. called amygdaliformis because of the almond-shaped leaves. Yeah. Yeah. And you could make cider of that. So you could just pick those, could you pick those, uh, those pears now? It. Yeah, I'm just going to pick it. In the meantime, I've got three olives in my top pocket. you keep pocket. looking at them and see what yes. happens in terms so of So I've got to watch apparently, so I've got one very black olive here. Oops, and Gabrielle has just gone out to pick wild pear. I'm in a car, the motor's on, just as we're about to cross a bridge. This is Italy, or oh, this is Sicily, certainly. Let's hope they see me. Uh, and I've got one very green olive here that's still very, very hard. So. Pictures We'll keep driving. We'll just keep driving. Okay. Wild pear. So you would need to bleeding mean means bleeding. Yeah, that's an almond tree. Bleeding oh, yeah. means you need to put it into straw or something in mm -hmm. a dark place and let it go brown. And usually any fruit that is picked in fall that needs bleeding, such as uh, uh, the medlar tree, the European German medlar, yes. or or these guys here, or um, I'm blanking on other. That fruit right. that need bleeding, but they're all heirloom fruit, right, of uh, a certain type. They uh, they need bleeding, and they will be ripe around Christmas. Okay. They'll be brown around Christmas. So the, these um, these wild, wild pears, pears, they don't grow any bigger than that. So no. we're, t we're talking about the size of a what are we looking at? Size of a marble, actually. Yeah. Yeah. Well, maybe a bit bigger than a marble. That's another almond tree. Okay. You can recognize them because they are covered in almonds. Because <laughs> they're, they're covered in almonds. Actually, no, I have never seen an almond on a tree. Oh, so we've got to stop. <laughs> we have to stop. Actually, I have in Spain, but I've forgotten because they've got an outer shell, haven't they? Yeah, they do. And so this is the thing. Quite often, you know, the majority of us only see the finished product de-shelled, so you cannot recognize in the countryside when you're in Europe. These are the two rockets, the, the white and the yellow. White flowering and yellow flowering. That's so we're, rock, we're driving down a side, uh, well, a, a road in Castelvetrano that's called Via Seggio, mm -hmm. and uh, it's lined with jasmine bushes that are flowering, hibiscus, white, pink, and red hibiscus flowering, um, rosemary bushes, all types, all sorts of palm trees, this is yep. a white mulberry tree. It doesn't have fruit. It only bears fruit in May. Okay. So it's obviously barren. It's going to start losing yep. its leaves. So that's a white mulberry bush that, uh, tree that's huge. And I always stop by it because no one cares for these kinds of things okay. here. There's a jasmine bush here. This is a mandarin grove. Mandarin they're, grove. Oh, they're yes. small. They're yep. not yet ripe. Um, this so is another almond tree there full of almonds. So this is almond season now, isn't it? No, it no? was already uh, it's passed. Okay. But I'm just going to see. Yeah, it's probably. I'm just going to drive closer to it again. And this okay. is a person's garden. It also has an almond tree there, but I'm not going to take you there. No. This is an asparagus object. plant, one of the many wild asparagus plants. There's prickly pears that have been picked there in season. Oh, uh, yes. These are the, like the cactus with the red yeah, flower, it's an orangey red flower on it, isn't it? Yeah, it's basically the fruit is called Opuntia ficus indica. And it's uh, native from Central America, and mm -hmm. it was probably, we imagine, brought to Sicily by the Spanish 
who had conquered Mexico. Mm -hmm. uh, and actually, the prince, first prince of Castelvetrano, was also uh, king of Mexico, uh, Cortes. Okay, yes, yeah, right? yeah, Cortes. Yeah. So, this is your almond tree. Right, okay, so it's got like a really like. Yeah, I'm black, just gonna stop the. Because it's not too windy. No, we can should do we that. go? Yeah, just maybe stop a bit it. So, you, we can see if it's a sweet almond yeah. or a bitter almond. And then, okay. the sweet almond means nothing else but the fact that it isn't bitter. When you make pastry with almonds in Sicily, like macaroons, you use 1% bitter almond, which is the only almond that goes into almond extract, which is the one that you buy in the UK in a shop. See? Yeah. So that's yeah. bitter almond. So that gives you the distinctive almond flavor. But um, you wouldn't want to use more than 1% when you make almond macaroons, which are made with egg white, honey, yeah. and or sugar, yeah. and almond, no yeah. flour. But we're going to see if this is a sweet no flower. That's brilliant, isn't it? In no flower, no gluten. Absolutely. But that's because it grows here, so we can afford it, right? But uh, although it's still expensive to buy native almonds, it's cheaper to buy California almonds here than this to it's buy crazy. Sicilian almonds. It's wrong. It's just wrong. Cardella, uh, which is a type of chicory, which you eat raw in a salad, and this is the. Milk uh, thistle. Milk thistle, yeah. Exactly, which you will, which you can eat. Um, you, you don't eat that raw. It, it's all thorny, so you have to ideally let it grow a little older and then use the stalks and clean off the thorny leaves. Yeah. Sorry, what did you say? This one, this is the. This is a, a weed that is called parietaria. Mm -hmm. Some people are allergic to it. That's what dogs eat here to clean their intestine. It's a, it's um, in Sicilian. It's called erba di vento, wind weed wind grass okay and it's used in traditional medicine for to cure bronchitis you make a um a bit of a of a pulpy type of mash with this and you would put it on your on your on your lungs yes your chest yeah and it would help cure um heal you from your bronchitis from your cough or especially if it's a thick sort of mucus uh, filled uh, cough you have but dogs will eat it these days and they're the only ones who use it anymore. Okay, and they, they know. They, they just know. know. They just they know. know. They eat only two uh, grasses here. They eat this, the parietaria, mm -hmm. and then they eat blades of young grass. Regular. Yes, yeah. like cats do that as well. You buy it in the... I've seen people yeah. buy it in yeah. the supermarket yeah. for, and for cats. And dogs will know. They just go... They don't they touch just... any of the um, maybe dangerous, poisonous plants. This is an amaranth. So amaranth. you would let this grow and then at some point you would take the seeds, you know, amaranth flower. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah. And then we have the purslane again. Purslane, yeah, which is a bit like the watercress, but it's much thicker, fatter, fatter, thicker. Yeah. And we're off to look at this mallow, almond tree. Tons of mallow. Mallow, yes. It's not going to flower till the spring. Okay. Walking along the curbside and into the, whoops which is also can be eaten and is also medicinal herb. Ah, okay. And then we have some borage, which is growing. Is that well. the one with the blue flower? Yep, the borage right. is growing, exactly. And so this is, we're under the almond tree. Yep. So it's no longer the season. So see, no one picked those. They just stayed here. So the shell got all gray. It's no longer brown. It's sort of yep. grayish. And now you can weigh it and sort of be like, is it empty? Has it not disintegrated? Has it been eaten from the inside by some insect? Uh, larva or something or yeah. is it uh, full still so we can only know if we crack it um, so this outer shell would be like a fuzzy velvety green yes. in the summer yeah and the almond inside would be white and for instance those green 
um, outer green inside white almonds are eaten whole in Lebanon and North Africa and the Near East. Yes. Here in Sicily, they don't eat them like that. They only eat them once they're ripe in the summer in August. Right. Uh, so we're now in October, so they're overripe. Yeah, yeah. They're beyond, they're dry for the most part. But we're going to try and see what happens if we... But, because we can still smell and taste. Sure. But this is really interesting that they eat them when they're white, a much younger nut. Um, but here you leave them till they're later. And yet the outer skin that, that forms around the almonds is actually not good for you. I mean, it's said that it's full of lectins and it can actually it's you know, disruptor and disruptor, all the rest Disruptor, etc. I guess it's with lectins, it's probably part of a package. It's what else is in that vegetable or fruit that is packaged together with the lectin and how it neutralizes the lectin. Right. So when we hear about not eating lectin and how bad lectin is for us and how it draws certain minerals out of our bones and our system and we need to then you know, avoid or, or keep things within uh, a certain proportion of how much we eat, right? Yes. There's also one thing that isn't considered much today and it's the, um, and I'm, I'm forgetting which uh, botanist or scientist or nutritionist talks about it, but how are these, how, which are the other compounds in that plant or fruit? that will n automatically neutralize some right. of the lectin. Okay, okay, that's so interesting. It's interesting. So there's, so there's much more to be learned and, and we're just not taught these things and we're hearing a lot of information that is maybe not, that is trending. And then, you know, it's like a focus and narrow sort of tunnel exactly. vision on the lectins, but what about the compounds that will neutralize the lectin of within course. the fruit? If you eat it whole, and it's only bad for you if you eat it processed, which will maybe only focus on the lectin part. See what I yeah, mean? Yeah, yeah, yes. So in the case of the almond, it would be the opposite. You normally eat it shelled and skinned, so you don't get that. Sure. Uh, sure but sure. if you eat it whole, maybe there's a plenty of things that will neutralize the lectin. Yeah. And I wonder whether there's this thing that, that, that plants surround itself with others that neutralize its existence. I don't know whether that's true. Yeah, yeah, whether... good question. It's really hard to know. Well, we stayed in our last um, well, Airbnb. Um, it, we were asked to recycle everything and everything was very much divided between, between paper, you know, organic, wet organic as they called it, yep. um, plastic and bottles. But then you go out into the countryside as we're driving along and all these beautifully separated bags seem to be strewn across the countryside so it's breaking the the system or the the process is breaking down at the most important moment which if you've got everybody thinking about recycling uh, and yet it's not actually happening in, in its full cycle and for trash was to burn it or 
or yeah. to abandon it. Right. And pile it up or whatever. So there's that problem number one. Then when you have not had problems with trash companies being mafiosi or corrupt or just breaking down the whole system, being absent, void, like trash removal, void, etc. Yes. Then you had, okay, new contracts between uh, municipalities, cities, and trash removal companies, and things have worked out until they haven't worked out. What? Sorry, I'm trying to, yeah, she doesn't know where we're going. I'm trying to hit this because that's one of the uh, first mills we're going Oh, to. okay. So what has happened with, with um, when the system has worked is that the, uh, it hasn't maybe worked 100% or people expected it to stop working anytime soon. And so it has been hard culturally to re-establish um, the habit of recycling and throwing trash the way they were told to recycle, separate, where to throw it, etc. Yes. And now the other explanation, which is maybe more pragmatic and rational for you to understand and easier for anyone to understand is that you have to pay taxes uh, to the city for the trash removal service. Yeah. Now, if you're not paying taxes, mm -hmm. you don't get to, uh, you don't get your trash to be picked up and recycled. And so mm -hmm. you abandon it. Mm. Okay. Because course, now yes. the system they've established here is that they give you bins with your code on it. Right, okay, so that, that's a way of knowing that if you're paying your taxes, so we'll pick up your rubbish. Yeah. So you get abandoned rubbish because there's bankruptcy or absence of service or okay. embezzlement of funds, you name it, whatever. Yeah. Um, or you get abandonment of rubbish because culturally, even though there is a service, you never know when it's going to stop. So it's like, why change my habits? You know, it's like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> depending on where you live, right? If you live in the countryside in a beautiful bucolic spot full of wonderfully well-kept olive trees and agriculture, it's totally normal for you to abandon your trash out there as well. You know, right. so there's heaps of trash in the most beautiful places. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's because people who live there, they're like, yeah. And even when there were services, maybe they didn't go into these areas. Sometimes they forgot, the service forgot to go and pick up the trash. It's like easier just to keep, stick with the habit. Yeah, yeah. Or you burn your trash, you abandon, burn your trash if you're in the countryside. You yes. Know, even though you might develop, you might you know, poison the environment by burning certain types of trash that's just plastic. Or people abandon tra uh, trash because they're not paying their taxes when there is a city surface that's working. Yeah. So they're not getting their um, labeled bins with their specific family code, house code. Yeah. And so what do they do with their trash? They abandon it. Mm, okay. So there's all the reasons not yeah. to, uh, to abandon it as opposed yeah. to all the reasons not to, you know, yes. the instant, the, yeah, the incentive is lacking to basically recycle. Wow. Anyway, so. here we've just arrived at the Oleficio Lombardo and Ch. Yeah, and company. <laughs> company. <laughs> Produzione di olio extravergine de oliva. So for extra, extra virgin olive oil. Production. Dated from 1948. Yeah, and it's one of many communal, um, communal mills meaning it's not a single estate's own private mill only used for a farm's own olives that goes into its own oil that has a label that right. is sold around the world with its label etc so this is this would be that would be a single estate yes product olive oil that has its own mill right but because to have your own mill it's a very expensive operation you need to have a lot of reasons to want one uh, you need to have a lot of olives, a big market for your oil, etc. So people don't usually have their own olive mill, so mm -hmm. they use a communal mill. They right. pay a miller 
to be able to mill their olives there. Okay, and then they know it's theirs. They they mill it at a certain time, so they know that's their olives. They though. never abandon their olives. It's yeah. a very time-consuming process. So you always have the grandpa of the situation or someone trusted. Uh, who's following the olives from the moment you leave them there until the moment they get okay. the oil comes out. Right. And it can be hours depending on how many people are picking that day and using that mill. And it's a miller's job to obviously manage how many appointments they make with people. Yes, yes. And um, so sometimes people who harvest olives and aren't very organized say what they will do is they can't organize the appointment for the milling of their olives, which has to happen as soon as possible after the olives have been picked. They As can't we've be. got my three olives in my shirt pocket yeah. that are oxidizing as we speak. They're getting softer. That's incredible. Yeah. You have a smaller, uh, greener, less riper olive, a yeah. bigger, green, riper olive, and an olive that's mostly all veered into purple, yeah. which we call black. And uh, you can feel them. You can almost feel the, the oil, oil starting out. to come out. Yeah. That's incredible. So that's the reason that's to get them to the mill as fast. That's now. 30 minutes? Uh, yeah, if that. And it's already yeah. oily in your hand and yeah. getting mushy, huh? Mm. Um, wow. So the reason why we're here is because it's the closest one on the road that we drove up to from the olive fields. Mm -hmm. And it's open and we can look at what's happening. Because it was raining so much in the first hours of the day, a lot of people today decided not to pick. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of mills are going to have very little olives and oil. So we'll ha probably have to go and see another couple of mills. Sure. But they're all okay. in town. There are a number of these mills. Okay. And we'll talk more about what um, you know, what happens in there, and what types of olives go in, and what kind of oil comes out. Okay, all right. What we want and what we don't want. I will need to just unentangle all these cables now. <laughs> I'm going to turn off. Pecorino Primo Sale, which is a young sheep's cheese. Yes. And uh, what you see here is Pecorino Primo Sale Bianco. It was just made. It's only a few, um, maybe that's about a day old, because you okay. already see some yellowing. Yeah. Primo Sale means first salt. It's nothing else but a rubbing of salt, which you need to preserve the cheese. And the more it ages, and you keep it in a refrigerated space, obviously, the more it ages, the more salt you add. Yeah. Now, if you're going to age it, if you don't care about eating it when it's young and you just want it aged, you just put it in a water bath, a brine bath of water and salt for a few days, and then you age it like that. Okay. That would make for aged pecorino, which is the grated pecorino that people put on pasta. Yeah. yeah. This you eat like that, fresh. You can grate it. I love it grated in broccoli or, or cauliflower mm, pasta because okay. it just melts. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's, yeah. it's wonderful. But you just eat it like that. It's your local cheese. And you eat it in salads? Or? You just eat it as an appetizer with olives, with cured olives bread. and bread. <laughs> but I eat it in tons of different ways, and I also put it in salads. Now, this is ricotta. Mm -hmm. So this uh, is a day-old ricotta yeah. because it's holding its shape. Yes. And these are aged ricottas that they probably salted because otherwise it wouldn't hold. And you can also hold uh, salt ricotta, I mean, store ricotta or hold ricotta over time if you not just salt it, but bake it. Okay. These are then harder ricottas that can be grated and they go into the Sicilian pasta from La Norma, which is your aubergine eggplant uh, mm. tomato pasta. Okay. Now what we're seeing here, so the different types of aged yeah. ricottas. Yeah, yeah, yes. The primo sale, white young um, sheep's cheese. And these are with flakes of chili, plain, then there's flakes of chili, Cheese, then there's olives, pepper. The pepper, traditional yeah. is black peppercorns, then there's oh, arugula, okay. green olives. Mm, wow. And this is yellow? Yeah. Oh, pistachio probably. Oh, okay. Uh, sort of, maybe. Yeah, we'll ask. And this isn't 
um, this is outside pepper. Imagine. This is the pepper ground on the outside for the crust to be all black. Okay. Cacciotta is uh, another word for um, vasteta, which is an, uh, 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 um, like mozzarella. It's a melted cheese that is then formed into um, a harder cheese, but it's still soft and, and very uh, mild. Okay. And uh, where the way it's made is because uh, until refrigeration arrived in this country here, which is uh, the Belice Valley, where the sheep of the Belice breed makes a ton of milk, mm -hmm. even in the summer, where most sheep don't make milk, okay, here it does. they do, okay. Mm -hmm. And so, and it's also a special breed because it also makes enough milk to actually allow its, um, its lambs to suckle while there's enough milk to go around for everyone wow, anyway. Okay. So your cheese obviously production diminishes, but you don't have to stop it. So you don't actually have to cull lambs unless it's Easter time and people here eat lamb yeah. and cull lamb, yeah. yeah. Uh, and so to go back to the cacciotta, which has a DOP slow food name, which is um, uh, Vasteda del Belice, it was born because before refrigeration arrived, the young primo sale, which was barely salted, it wasn't cured with that brine to be aged into aged pecorino. It was it would go bad with the heat over time. Yeah, of course, yeah, yeah. So and very quickly. I very quickly. In so in the summer, because you were still making it, because the production was still going on, what you would do, um, and apparently it's some farm farmers' wives who invented that because it's like no waste, right? You okay. don't waste anything. No. They cut it up and they actually melted it. Okay. With the addition of hot water, you just melt it, melt it, and then it turns into this mozzarella-like sort of like stringy thing, and you reshape it okay. into dishes, yeah. soup dishes, which were the only actual shape of dishes in farmers' kitchens, and that's the shape of the vasteda, of the little flat uh, cheese, and it has a sour, distinct sour taste, and it goes very sour, but in a very agreeable way, mm -hmm. and it's totally not, almost not salty at all, and it goes really well with figs. Oh, and okay. with fig jam, it's Lovely. the best combination. I My tummy figs. is making noises. Yes. So let's look at the ricotta. So what's ricotta? Ricotta is the leftover from the cheese production. Yes. It's the recooked ricotta way. Ricotta, so, okay. So the sheep milk head. gets heated, you add rennet to it, or yes. if you're in your agrigento, then it's not going to be sheep, it's going to be goat, and then you add a natural thistle, a wild artichoke type of rennet, so it's yes. vegan. It's not vegan here, it's vegan over there in Agrigento. So you add any type of rennet, veg like a vegetable rennet, a plant rennet, or an, a lamb rennet, which yeah. is the inside of the guts of a suckling lamb. Lovely. And you add a bit of rennet, but a little bit goes a long way, like a little touch of it will yes. do a whole vat of, you know, 100 liters. So a lamb sacrifice will last for many days of cheese making. Okay. But anyway, so you put the rennet in your Sounds heated sheep, sad, it is sad, in your sheep's milk, and then it curdles, and then you, the curds will come up, right? And mm -hmm. that's your cheese, your primo sale, mm -hmm. and you're going to decide whether you're going to make primo sale or aged pecorino. If right. you're going to make aged pecorino, you make, like this one here, you're going to make a huge, large sort of so uh, like shape. the size of a cake, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, very big. Whereas if you're making primo sale, you're sticking to these smaller sizes here. Yes, yes. So if we're talking in terms of grams... A bit more like a small Christmas pudding shape. Yeah, exactly, perfect. <laughs> yeah, yeah, good translation. So this is, uh, you know, about half a kilo is a small pecorino primo sale. Mm -hmm. About a kilo is a larger pecorino primo sale. And this guy there is going to be four, five, six kilos. Right, yeah. That's yeah. the smallest yeah, yeah. aged pecorino you can have. <gasps> So that's that the smallest, that's how it's Yeah, huge. it gets yeah. very big. Yeah, yeah. So you decide, when your curds come up, you decide what's going for pecorino primo sale, which 
has a lifespan of a month. You can keep on salting it and keeping it refrigerated for about a month. Right. But right. in a month, it's going to be yellow and sort of I no mean, one wants that. that. People want, you know, want it young and rubbery. Yes. Um, obviously, we're going to have to buy. I'm going to have to buy some and taste these. So you can yes. taste what we're talking okay. about. What, so, what is your what's your favorite? What do you like? Uh, I like plain pecorino. I like vasetta, and then the ricotta will get. So, what's ricotta? Okay. It's when you take the whey that's left over from the cheese making, you reheat it, you add some fresh milk to it you want to re-enrich it because yes. at that point it has low protein it has low fat yes you enrich it with a bit of fresh milk you heat it up again but instead of only heating it up to 40 degrees body temperature say you heat it up to 80 degrees and after about an hour there will be little snowflakes of more curds left over that will st start floating to the surface and at that you also have added salt to the ricotta the ricotta is always a little salted whereas the cheese really isn't mm -hmm. it gets salted afterwards see the ricotta comes up, and those curds are fresh ricotta. Okay. And when it's really made fresh, it's like soupy. Mm. And if you have it right away with some whey in the in it, it's called zabina. It's like a, a ricotta soup. But it dries out really quickly, and you have to, because the liquid whey is going to waste. It's going to spoil the ricotta. So you want to dry the ricotta so you can keep it a few mm. days to make a cake, to make a cheesecake. Uh, to put into your cannoli, to put into your yes, cassata cake. Which is so popular here. Or oh, you're right. going to dry it and salt it to use later as dried ricotta to grate over pasta like pasta la norma. Okay, okay. So let's see if they can show us. Look, that's the fresh ricotta from this morning. Okay, so we have been running around Castle Tavana and we've been to the cheese place, a mill that's about to reopen that hadn't, and now we are now, where are we? Now? At Baglio Trinita. Okay. It's on the outskirts of Castelvetrano, mm -hmm. uh, looking down towards the south, uh, southwest, which is the direction of Spain, of the island of Pantelleria and of Mazzara, Mazzara del Vallo. So we'll see the sea from here. Okay. Because Castelvetrano is only a few kilometers from the shore and you see, and it's a sort of higher on a plateau where all these olive groves are. Yes. And this plateau is only divided by valleys where rivers flow. And so we'll be, we're coming from the olive groves of the Belice Valley mm -hmm. up into the plateau of Castavetrano where we went to the cheese place yes. and looked at the mills yes. that were all still closed and are going to open in a bit. And we're now at uh, the end of the plateau, the other end, looking into the Valle di Mazzara, which you'll see here. Okay. So where we were, where the olive trees are, that's where the big earthquake was of 1968, yeah, which, which completely demolished several towns, several towns such as Poggio Reale, Sala Perutta, uh, whatever uh, the other name is, Gibellina, Montevago, all these towns. And Castavetrano, where we are, was hit as well as all the other Belice Valley towns, but yes. not as much. So we okay. saw some churches that were, uh, you know, obviously damaged, ruined, damaged, yeah. and that were either reconstructed in part or left like that as ruins. Yes. Um, and so the area where we are here is also used to be also a religious place, a church, if you will. And we're going to see this jewel of Norman, Arab Norman architecture, Byzantine Sicilian architecture, which is the Chiesa della Trinità di Delia, the mm -hmm. Church of the Trinity of Delia. Delia is the name of this area here, the name of the lake that we'll see from here. Um, and what we're seeing here, which is an event space called Valio Trinità, is owned by one of the last sort of aristocratic, quote unquote, aristocratic, families uh, of, of Castavetrano, which were also in charge of the city in terms of uh, ruling it really in the 19th century yes. and are responsible for the Teatro Selinus, which is a beautiful building on the main square, which you saw while I was grabbing our picnic gear. Oh, yes, yeah, yes. And uh, 
Um, it's that neoclassical building from the first half of the 19th century. And so this place here is owned by the same family, which is called Saporito, and they're still called Saporito today. And what you see, the event hall is a leftover of a convent. Okay. And wow. there is a logic to why the Normans, who were called in by the Pope to uh, expel the Arabs, you know, the Arabs from Sicily, um, would have um, built a, a, a wonderful jewel of a church here. And adjacent to a convent that was already existing and it's because they were before they became before they crowned themselves kings of sicily first kings of sicily yes as a way to pay themselves back because the pope didn't apparently hold his share of this of the agreement how dare he <laughs> he's like so we got the abs out or sort of you know but but what about us now you know and they were like okay we'll keep sicily then <laughs> you know so they self-crowned themselves kings of sicily and yeah. And the important thing for them in that in-between transitional phase was sort of like, what do we do with the, obviously, loot money or the whatever, the wealth or whatever it is. So they were um, using monasteries of certain orders, obviously, as uh, repositories okay. of, of wealth. Yeah, wealth and also management of territory because it was all, sure. you know, agricultural and, and wooded um, hunting properties. Yes. And there was some... The fishery was nothing in those days. We're looking at a thousand years ago. So I'm, I'm thinking basically the important Im information here to remember is that these convents, they were more than just convents. They yes. had this whole sort of um, uh, role of controlling the territory, of, of, you know, securing the wealth, and also just dealing with all of the owners of farmland, etc. And their tributes, their taxes, their crops, the whatever. So big how administrators. They, yeah, really big administrators. Exactly. Yeah. So we're here at Baleo Trinita, and we're going to look at the Chiesetta. Mm -hmm. the, you can see the cupola over yes, there, right? Yeah, yeah. It's a, my art history teacher at Basel University, Beat Brank, called it a, a jewel of uh, Norman, Byzantine, Arab architecture. Fantastic. Wow. How exciting. <laughs> From my, take me back to my uh, building survey, conservation building surveying days, where every building I look at here in Castle, Castle Vetrano um, needs repair and help and work. And TLC. Buongiorno. Buongiorno. So they're redoing the pavement here, as you okay. can see. So what you see is uh, the three lobate, the, the three the abscess, Apsis, right? Yes. And I'm not sure whether this, uh, it's not alabaster, but whether this marble um, stone, which has a certain name, you know, how and when you go to Morocco and the windows uh, of the Riyads, they have this sort of lace oh, work, yes. Uh, yes. wooden or, or stone yeah. work, uh, like screens, basically, yes. right? Yes, yeah, yes. So you see exactly the ornamental intricate ornaments of, of triangles within stars within yeah. you know, all these different shapes intersecting yes. but the um, it's it's incredibly this church I would think I don't know if you agree with that but it's uh, it's incredibly uh, interesting and, and sort of poetic in the way that it's uh, it's rough because the stone this tufa what they call tufa stone which is nothing but uh, sandstone mm -hmm. um, is is very unrefined right in its appearance it's sort yeah. of porous it's yellowish but that's very typically normal typically very just plain, plain simple simple design. yet yes. the detail of yes. the arab uh probably uh, masons who worked at this is is still very nice because the ojibwe windows they they have this yeah. uh, this profile which it's is like, like a triple triple right? arch like yeah a, triple yeah. arch and um and you'll see more of what I mean by the subtle, a really beautiful craftsmanship from the inside. 
but but there's the profiles within within the surface of these walls. There's mm -hmm. profiles within profiles, profiles. and they're yes, all sort exactly. of intricately. It's almost like it's like these three D. Yeah, yeah, puzzled in together like yeah. that, right, pieced in and. And yeah, you never lovely. really realize it from afar. You have to really get up close to see how. Yeah. yeah. Oh, so there's workers here, and they're redoing the pavement. Yeah. What you're seeing here is the entrance to the crypt. Okay. So, so you've got a both a family some crypt. Yes. Down, and this is the side entrance of the church, and this was the uh, uh, this was a particular Orthodox rite church. Yeah. Uh, because. Well, Byzantine, the Byzantine order that was here before the Normans arrived. Okay. They then, yeah. you know, used the hold that the Byzantine that the, this Byzantine order already had on the on, on the on the area, right? And, and sort of adapted it to their needs. Sure, sure, sure. But there was something here before the Normans arrived. Byzantines occupied Sicily when the the Roman era ends and melts into the. Byzantine era, so we're looking at the 5th century BC, uh, AD, sorry, so from the 5th century, the 400s, yes, into yes. 800 when the Arabs invade and conquer Sicily, and the Arabs stay here until the Normans come to uh, expel them yeah. In, yeah, yeah. In, in the 11th century around. My goodness, wow. So, right, yeah. this, this, the way that light hits this side of the facade, yes. which is a side view. Sorry about the sound of the cement mixer going on beside us. Yeah, let's quickly look inside. Yeah, maybe let's do that. It looks like there's a wasp's nest up there. Yeah. They're all getting in. Look at lovely big old stone steps to get in. Goodness, what? Is paper bush? Paper. Caper, caper. Oh, caper. Caper. Okay. What a caper. Wow. Look at this. Oh my goodness. I was not expecting this inside. It's absolutely beautiful, isn't it? That is, it's stunning. <laughs> and there's the detail on, on the columns holding, I mean, look how much weight yes, they're the carrying. Yeah. Those Corinthian columns Co with Corinthian ma on capitals, marble. Yes, um, I forgot the name of the specific marble. But it's different types. There's, this is different the types. Yes, there's a Cipollino over there. I think it's Cipollino. This one is the maybe porf. It's not a porphyry marble, but it's close to it. Or yeah. maybe it wants to. It's maybe less precious than porphyry, one. but wants to be one. Yeah. yeah. Um, obviously, the sarcophagi. <laughs> and who who who's the who's family in? members as well as the crypt below? Yes. Okay. Yes. Saporito, as I was mentioning you. Saporito. Yeah. Yeah. Saporito. Yeah. My goodness. So, wow. And the, uh, yeah, I mean, it just leaves you speechless. So they just, um, as an anyone... historian, I should be able to blabber on, but I'm like thinking olives and oil right now and cheese and, <laughs> and I'm hungry. <laughs> we should go and have a picnic, really, shouldn't we? I mean, it is beautiful and you have to come and see this. So this is impossible and, and to what actually. About this? Yeah, the dome. It's just a beehive dome shape. Yeah, and it's um, sitting on top of angular niches, yes. which are arched, a gyre yeah. as well, yeah. and um, side windows. Side windows. So it's basically oh, open one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. It yeah. has eight openings. It's a little cupola sitting on top of a square. I mean, it's a typical yeah. uh, Byzantine, Arab Byzantine architecture, right? But, sure. Um, but here it, it, it has this Romanesque sort of this Norman aspect as well. And so that's why it's so unique. Yeah. It's yeah, a unique yes. representation. And it's a jewel because it's like a little jewel box. 
but also because it's precious in, in its architectural um, expression and because of the quality of the work, the craftsmanship, mm. Um, mm. the way the stones are cut, the way the, I mean, all of these different details that you're, <laughs> you're looking at right now. Yeah. It's just really high quality. Yeah. And it just looks rough because the stone is kind of rough. And if you're looking at it from afar on the outside, you just, you think it's beautiful. You're like, oh, that's pretty, the cupola and the side and the abscess. You see all of that, but you don't notice. It doesn't really catch you and t it's like really enveloping you when you get closer. It's a very, um, it's a very um, almost compact building, but full of decoration, Yeah, isn't it? It's just but like, plain. Solid There's and no plain. stucco, no. basically. No? There's no, no. no wall painting. There's but it has no a beauty of its own. Yeah, it's own, just isn't it? you know, tufa stone and yeah. marbles of different kinds. So it's yellow ochre, I would say, ochre and gray and whitish, mm. yep. off-white. These are the colors. And then there's the old wood of the doors and the openings, and then this sort of alabaster-type screen window. Yeah. And also a pinky color stone as well, sort of pinky, browny pinky color. Yep. Terracotta, yeah, no, very light. Yeah, yeah, it almost looks like aged ter old terracotta, mm. which is the, the tufa taking on the different oxidation. So, what what would have been stages. the religion? I mean, if it was Byzantine, then it, it would have Byzantine, been Orthodox. It was Byzantine, Orthodox, and then the Normans arrived, and obviously they then merged it with their, uh, which would have been Catholic. Yeah, Christian. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And so, the. Um, I forgot the name of the actual Byzantine order, but it starts with a B, B, Basile, Basi, Basil, ba, Basil something is the name of the Byzantine order that was here when the Normans arrived and the one that they then sort of used for all these functions that we just explained, right? Sure. And then they merged another new order with this older one that was losing power because obviously the Normans arrived friendly and all, and then at some point they're like, let's bring our people in. Because so this uh, order had its own power. Yeah, The yeah, Byzantine yes. rule had been here for hundreds of years and the Normans arrive and they obviously want to rule the place and so they need to substitute with their own people. I mean, they use whoever can be an ally for a given time, right? And then sure, sure, they're sure. like, okay, too but much they, power. But the Arab, Arabic influence or the Moroccan, like the Moroccan style, did that come, that must have come later as infills into the arches? The Arabs were here from 800 to 1,000, 250, 300, almost to 300 years. So when the Normans arrived, they have a Byzantine and an Arabic um, culture. Okay. They have, right. they have the Byzantine folks that are left over from post-Norman, post-antiquity times. Yes. And they have the Arabs on top of the Byzantines. Mm. And so they arrived from what northern a France. Lovely ameliorated mix of people. Yeah, which is why you really it's find I can so even say that when I'm starving. <laughs> <laughs> Good job. <laughs> like, this um, is and and can anybody come? Yes, yes and so normally this is this has a lock as you've seen. We just yes. found it open because there's this man doing working here. This, yeah, yeah that's very lucky. But uh, you have to just ring the bell at the Baglio, the event uh, uh, monastery, right? This building right next to us, yeah. the event hall, banqueting hall. And they give you the key. Okay. And it used to be free or you would leave us something, two euros, three euros, five euros, depending on what you want to leave. Sure. Um, and it's the kids now of the Saporito family. They're in their teens or early 20s, maybe, or late 20s, because time flies. Um, I remember them as tiny little toddlers. So. Oh, really? But so yeah, they're actually managing the place now. And yeah. so you'd probably... Care. And that's... A, uh, this looks Arabic. Is this? this is actually uh, 18th century, 19th century, turn of the century, uh, commemorative stele, which is... Uh, what's a stele in English? It's a, um, it's a funerary monument for this young boy 
whom you see uh, sculpted yes. by this uh, stele who is sort of wrapping it in a wreath of flowers. Yes. He's a young Saporito child who died uh, tr tragically. Right. And this is where he's buried, and this is okay. his commemorative. Because from this angle, it looks like he's got uh, like a, a little like sultan's hat on, or a sort of yeah. Arabic. Yeah. Maybe I'm yeah. wrong. No, it's basically just child's clothing mm. uh, up to a hundred years ago, I guess, mm. more or less. It's like a little sailor's sash I've, type oh of thing. Yeah, I've, yes, I'm just looking at the head. It looks like he's got that kind of. But maybe maybe it's just what I'm. Maybe it's because I'm hungry. I'm seeing. We're seeing it from the back. <laughs> That's true, yes. Right. So you're just seeing yeah. the back of his head, mm. short hair, his arms are lifted as he's wrapping this like column, this pilaster in a garland, yeah, of flowers. flowers yeah. And we're seeing it from the back, and it's very nice how the yeah. uh, sculptor rendered the uh, fabric of whatever that sash is around the waist yeah. with that uh, ribbon yes, bow, type of bow, yeah, yeah. yeah. The little skinny legs, little lifted. He's on his on, on his, his tippy toes. toes. Yes, <laughs> yeah. And then in the foreground here, these uh, geranium geraniums. Yep. incredible. Yep. I've never yep. seen geraniums that big. Yeah, they're more yep. like look how big bush. They're, they're yeah. bushes. I think these have these are the very fragrant ones. I can't remember if they're the edible kind or the. Let's see if we rub oh, we them. We can smell them from here. Then. Yeah. Very oh, fragrant, yes, very, very strong. Fragrant, yeah. And this is the uh, falso pepe tree, or the pink pepper tree, of which okay. we have plenty in like Lanzarote, I think, is mm -hmm. where a friend of mine from Switzerland would go and pick them every year and fill her. So these are the small peppercorns that are now growing from the flowers, so they're tiny and, and pale green, and yes. but we've seen some still hanging on because these pink peppercorns oh there we go over there so, they're still oh. hanging on they're pink yeah yep 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 okay yeah so that's peppercorn those are the pink peppercorns yeah yeah fantastic so you could just pick those yeah and then do you need to dry them and crush them or you they're can already, just... when they're pink on the tree they're already dry okay so, so you could actually yeah yeah definitely you bring them home and um let's you know, see if you... i can pick these ones yeah definitely or is this called stealing so if oh my goodness okay I used, I served this pink peppercorn with yellow melon. I, the yellow melon is in season now. It's the, there's winter melon coming in, which is yellow and green melon that is sort of like a honeydewish type melon. Yeah. Two different kinds yes. around here. And I just uh, uh, carve it up. I serve yep. it with lemon juice, green lemons, because right now the lemons are green. Yes. And, uh, and a bit of honey. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and I crush this on top. Okay. Um, a little bit of it. Right. Fantastic. So. There we go. Yeah, and this here is a nettle tree, which also do, makes these little berries, like the hawthorn berries we we saw earlier, but they're smaller, and they're hackberry, a hackberry tree. Hackberry. So this okay. will grow into a huge tree, and hackberry is one of the hardiest woods, um, and so it's hard to find hackberries these days, but um, I have some very old hackberries around um, here that I go visit, and one in my garden as well. Uh, so this is tiny hackberry growing, and here's a mandrake, mandragora, which is a poison mm -hmm. and gets mistaken by people who forage, even locals, for borage or um, other types of wild-growing greens. And it's, you know, it can be recognized because it has a blue flower, but when uh, it, so you when it's not that, flowering, it's, it's purple. Yeah, right? and it's it's like a poison. People end up in hospital every year now Gosh. and then. Well, I think that's it. I think that's the wild um, celery that gives its name. Uh, to Selinus. It's the ancient Greek Selinon that gives a name to Selinunte, which 
Selinus Selinos in Greek. The name is Apium nodiflorum, I think, or something like that. Okay. I think that's what it is. It's like a, it's like one of those variety of, of celery that grows in water, one of the water celeries. Mm -hmm, but mm -hmm. it doesn't have to grow in the river in the water. It can grow here, as you can see. Yeah, but it's yeah, quite yeah. moist. So it's very moist. So well, yeah, probably yeah, not yeah. surprising with all the rain we've had the last two days. Exactly. See, mandragora. Oh, my goodness. Mandrake. Yep. Think Harry Potter mandrake. Okay, that is it. Right, time to get out of here. Yeah, and eat. So this is a hunting... Reservation. Mm -hmm. um, the Saporito family and this Baglio Trinita event space and the Church of Santissima Trinita di Delia are located in a hunting reservation. So we'll hunting see... What? Um, well, they have deer, uh, obviously there's porcupine, there's, um, there's all kinds of, um, what do you call those? Um, Goat-type animals like the Monte Cristo goat, like um, so they ran, uh, you know, and they they live they here. Oh, they live. They here. live here because it's they, a really huge property. Yeah. So they. Um, I'll show you the view. They farm these animals and then shoot them. Yeah. And but how about a the boar, porcupines? How about the porcupines? Porcupines are wild. They're just yeah. wild here. But do they They're eat huge. the porcupine? Yeah, it's like apparently pork meat. Okay. Um, Poor things. Aren't they um, a rare porcupines? Aren't they rare? They're not on the endangered list here, apparently. To me, any animal in the wild is rare in 2022 yes. on this planet right now, right? <laughs> <laughs> so you wouldn't yeah. want to shoot and eat them. No. It's not like we need it. No. At, on the other hand, I understand how um, wild you know, game is also something I grew up with because I, I grew up in Basel, Switzerland. So I, I ate a lot of game in Alsace and in uh, the Schwarzwald in Germany right. every Sunday. So I know how it, it can be really the healthier meat if you're going to do meat. Yeah. yeah. But there's, you know, it's a whole complicated thing. So yeah. this jasmine bush jasmine is taking is your mind away. Yeah, I know. It's just totally. Isn't it, isn't the like perfume's amazing, isn't it? It's, it's inebriating. When they say inebriating scent, right? It, totally. They have weird uh, exotic plants that uh, are absolutely not native to here as well. But uh, anyway, so if I see any... Plumbago. Plumbago, yes, tons of it yes. here. Okay. All of the underwoods here are covered in acanto, acanthus, that, which is this uh, leaf that I forgot the name in proper in common English, but it's acanth acanthus. It's the one that is on the Corinthian, Greek Corinthian uh, capitals. Acanthus? Acanthus, yeah. Probably, yes. And so wow, this whole... So this is the view. This is the Mazzara Valley, okay. because over there is, is Mazzara del Vallo, okay. and, and after it is Marsala, and that's the, the end of Sicily. Wow. The sea is right there, but we, you have to sort of scoot over. The sea is right there. But all of this is sea, but it's a, it's a, it's a cloudy sort of... Yes, hazy day. Hazy and day you can then the... see beyond Africa from yeah, here. Yeah, Pantelleria. You can see Pantelleria. You can't see Africa, but you can see Pantelleria on a clear day. Pantelleria okay. is really closer to Africa almost than it is to here, right? And that also means that the shores get um, landed upon, landed on by tons of boat people all the time. But the people who land on the shores directly on the beaches here, they just uh, escape during the night. They just get lost in the wilderness. They don't even go make it to those camps for immigrants, etc., etc. Right. So people who come across abandoned clothes on the beaches, etc., you know, you have to go to the police and bring them and report them. And so, but there's like a whole, because we're on those shores, there's yeah. like a whole, um, I guess, uh, illegal immigration happening. Yeah. Not that the other so, ones are. So, bad, those, so those who are, I mean, obviously they're arriving in pretty... No one's feeling, complaining about it here. Feeling this pretty is, poor, yeah, poor Sicilians, state. Yeah, Sicilians well, are not, generally speaking, they're not 
I've never heard anyone here do a right-wing type of speech like we need to get rid of foreigners or what I mean that's it's like no matter where you come from poor Africa or you know or you're a wealthy tourist from I don't know Singapore or New York Sicilians aren't they're just not xenophobic no they really aren't no, no, no. it's I'm, not a typical they want thing in the culture here to not want to help to try and help as well I mean no nope, they're also not very helpful they don't want to they're help. more on the exploitative side when it comes to like oh free labor you know sort of oh, really thing. Okay. it's bad yes it's bad it's complicated and there's a business of obviously hosting the less illegal immigrants the ones that get intercepted and land sure. up in those um, centers camps, camps yeah. etc But look, this is a weird fruit. I forgot yes. its name. It's a, it grows from yeah that tree, and it's totally not Sicilian. But is it is this, worth. Is this the smelly? It's not the durian, no. but it's one of those guys from Asia. Right. <laughs> That's very cultured of me. Seems <laughs> one of those guys from Asia. But, but seems very very happy here. Yeah, it's thriving. It is. I mean, seriously. Oh, again, another jasmine. Oh, and then there, and there, and there. Yeah. Like my head is spinning I from know, all the jasmine. That looks like the showering fruit there. Is it the orange? Uh, it's no, like actually a mandarin. no. Like yeah, mandarin. it's from this Because also pomegranates are in season at the moment yeah, too. Yeah, yeah, We saw a tree. Where did we, did, we pass we? it? Yeah, oh. as we were, we, we were focusing on our um, technology. And so I, um, let's see. If we walk past it again, we'll just pick one and have it. Well, no, we're going to my spot now for for. Oh, okay, perfect. So we'll leave that. Pomegranates, quince, and sharon fruit. Fantastic. Oh my goodness, dessert. I don't know what you call it, but it's khaki here. Yeah, khaki, khaki. All right, so the picnic, I'm going to drive us to our picnic spot. Okay, great. So this is owned, so we're dri now driving through, gosh, just open. A nature reserve. A nature reserve. This and is an open gate that is normally not, because I, um, I am a forager, I'm a walker, yeah. a hiker, a walker, and I also have a rescue mm -hmm. with dogs that I either pick up from places where they've been abandoned, like this yeah. area here. Yeah just the outskirts of town which here immediately becomes rural countryside yes. farm etc because yeah. funnily enough yesterday when we were driving to Castle Volcano and we were on a, a road there was nothing around and there was a dog in almost perfect condition on its own and I thought somebody's just come out and dumped that dog I'm sure because it was running after the car and, and Steve was saying no can't possibly be but it must have been I think just a um, dump dog. dog well we also have monitored strays Uh, these are dogs that are uh, friendly and healthy and can be uh, sterilized, microchipped in the name of the city. Yes. Uh, and then the city becomes the owner of the dog and then they can be put back instead of sheltered for life because we have practically almost zero adoptions from shelters. Okay. So they get put back uh, on the street and they're, it's basically like the cats, right? TNR, trap, neuter, return. So they become the, the, they become the ownership strays. of the... Yeah, of, of the town. Yeah, and then citizens or, or people who belong to rescues, organizations, etc. Sort of the main referent, the tutor of the street dog. Mentor. Or, <laughs> yeah, and, or they just get taken care of by people who live here yeah. and who care about dogs. And they're usually, dogs are, you know, they roam, but yes. their neighborhood, they will choose a neighborhood, a place, uh, and, they're, and humans they like, and, and they give them what they need. Right. I don't know, in the valley, and the, there's lakes and stuff. And this is the nature reserve. Nature reserve. Yeah. So. And there's and this fence we're driving along. Okay. And is the nature reserve, was that given back to the the, the area, to Castle Volcano community it's not area? From the, it's not owned by the city, it's owned by the region, by the state, the region okay. of Sicily. But was it like originally... Like all nature reserves. Okay, but was it taken back, taken back 
Whom did they into belong the, to before? Yeah, was it Sacra? Well, Sicily has gone through so much turmoil in terms of the dismantling of aristocratic, aristocratic feudal-owned uh, land, well, I guess, uh, properties, estates. Yes. And which is also why it's really hard in Sicily, over several waves, right? There was the Italian unification, and then there was more uh, closely to our times, the uh, 1930s communism and the new laws that said that owners had to distribute some of their land to the farmers who became the owners. And so it all got fractioned into small lots of land, plots mm -hmm. of land. And so that's also why it's difficult today to find really large estates and some uh, landowners have uh, aristocratic and not have been buying back the land okay. uh, or, or buying properties to, to make them into very large um, unified properties again but it's very hard to find big estates all owned by one company or family or a person or whatever you know entity uh, it's more because of the laws that around communist days forced large landowners to fraction their properties and give ownership to farmers. Okay. And these roads that are, are in pretty poor condition, but there's lots of cracks and everything, is that all from the earthquake? Do you think that's just never been nope, fixed? No, or? it's never been fixed. And um, things, roads here get it's too much money and effort to build them well, and it's much better if these public contracts can be given to companies which will then pocket some of the money they're supposed to spend on good materials and good construction and and share that pocketed money with you public official who's given who's insured them yeah the contract these are abandoned almond trees all of them wow just abandoned yep abandoned because uh, it's part of the reserve or it's, it's just... Uh, this is no longer nature reserve. Is... This is now, as we drove through that fence opening, we're yeah. out in private properties. These are all pieces of land that are... See, there's olive pickers yeah. there that belong to oh, different yeah. people. Okay, but nobody's looking after these almond trees. Nope. I'd love to have some almond trees. Yep. And they're right next to the olive trees. There's some palm trees. There's beautiful old mm. stone walls, right? And there's these cactus lovely. It's like a really um, old country lane. Yeah. Well, it's actually more like a track, a drover's track. We're yeah. going down there. Yeah, you definitely are. With like, um, right, are there goats around here then? That really no, no, no wild goats. Um, in terms of wild animals, you can have more. I mean, obviously, you have the sheep. Yes. And they. They graze, but they belong to a shepherd. They have a place yeah. to overnight, right? They're not free roaming in nature, but during the day they're taken out and they're grazing yes. public land, private land, everyone's land. Everywhere, yeah. They and go, they roam. Yeah, literally. they roam. With, with their keeper and the with dog shepherd, and so forth. Yeah. Shepherd, yeah. Um, so would they, would the shepherd bring them in here, for example, and just start? No, because this is owned by several different, tons of different owners, and there's groves, and they would get really angry if the sheep were to wow. eat away. <gasps> is that? Yeah, that's from the rain now. Yeah. Oh road, so we have to stop here. The road has just collapsed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. We have to stop here <laughs> and pick a lemon oh, because we have a beautiful green lemon tree. So this is enough shade for now. Perfect. Because we'll have a really quick picnic because really literally uh, I looked at the time and uh, we're running out of it. Yeah. We've got to go and meet a beekeeper. Okay, to all you podcast listeners out there, I hope you have enjoyed this podcast. Um, I've certainly been incredibly inspired. I hope you have too. If you have enjoyed it, please do share with your friends. Please do 
um, write a rating and a review because this is how my podcast guests reach a wider audience and this as you know is what this podcast is all about but for now wherever you are in the world take care and thanks for listening